Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies, where we discuss any films that are too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Sometimes these films gel. Oh my god, what did I say? Sometimes, okay, sometimes the, what's the exact wording I use? Occasionally these, these films gel. Oh. Is it? Did I say gel? Yes. Is it? Okay. Occasionally Jesus these films Christ. gel. Sometimes <laughs> they crash hard that? into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. There's not, even, there's not even an intro in the Cheetah Girls episode, so the precedent has been set that we can do whatever the fuck we want. Um, oh, and, and college boy, this is it. That's my quote for this episode. <laughs> uh, that's it? Okay. Um, I, I want to get back to the quotes because there was another one I was going to pick. But I, I don't think it would uh, segue as well into this. But welcome! Welcome, cinema audience. We are starting a new series. And oh boy, this is one for the ages. This is one for the Robs in the group. We are finishing up the Martin Brest filmography this month. Oh, who's pumped? Wait, hold on. Sorry. Rap horn for Martin Brest. Because when you think of Martin Brest, you think of the rap horn. I I am so excited to do this. Um, I think just coming off of last month's series, it was great. Zach, remember when we discussed the uh, movies that should have changed the world? That was awesome, yes, right? I, I remember it very vividly. Oh, it was so cool. I mean, we did Star... Sh- I, I, I shouldn't even go there. It's going to be... If we, we change Valerian, anything, I'm going to We did Mad Max Fury Road. I was about yes, to say, this I is going to make the editing it. harder for me. And Zach's just like, yeah, fucking double down. Make the editing harder. It's going to name movies I know we won't do. So Ross is like, crap, crap. Yeah, Stuck so in the suburbs. We- Yes, we're recording. We're recording a series before we even recorded last month's series. So enjoy all the weird, like dancing around things that we probably won't do. Because that's how that's how we do it. Uh, that's how Cinematis goes. And um, with all that out of the way, I'm very glad that, uh, in all seriousness, we are actually doing the Martin Brest series, the movies that he's directed. Now you might think to yourself, "Well, Martin Brest, he's come up on Cinematis before. Remember episode." 99 from January 20th of 2020, Zach, when we did Giggly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. we did Gigli this year? Yeah, well, we recorded it in 2019, I'm pretty sure, but it released in January 20th. Maybe, I don't know, I don't have the spreadsheet open. (laughs) I feel, oh my god. According to Spotify, its release date, it was January 20th, 2020, episode 99 of Cinemodities, right before Mortal Engines. I know it came out this year, but, like, I didn't... Oh, my God. Like, that, we recorded that this year. That feels like... Oh, God, we did the Vanilla Sky thing this year. That feels like it was an eternity ago. I, I know. I mean, it's been, a, it's been a long road, Zach, but we've done Geely. Um, yes, we th- have. There's a very, very weird discussion about Meet Joe Black over on Knights of Vader, uh, which is the episode from May the 4th, 2019. So some of Martin Brest we've covered already. But for a long, long time, Rob has been begging Zach to finish up the filmography. And I say that very specifically, that Rob was begging Zach, because when Zach took his hiatus from Cinemodities and we had all those other guests, you know, shout out to LaShawn, Justin, uh, Ben, who's, you know, been on a lot now since, I don't think I can talk about Martin Brest with any of those other people. I need Zach to talk about the Breast Man. Would you agree? That you gotta be here. The breast man. (laughs) I did, I have to say, I did see a review 
from 1977 about the movie we're talking about today, and they spell Martin Brest's name as Brest, the the physical attribute, and not B-R-E-S-T, and I'm like, God oh. damn. <laughs> oh, man. See, because spell check is not that horrible after all. Yes. <sighs> yes. This is, this is, this is going to be an interesting discussion. This, is, this might be the first time in Cinemas where we have practically no information about a film going into it. It, like this is like one of those really times is. where there's practically nothing to talk. There's really the context is going to be like minuscule. The surrounding knowledge is non-existent, and how even getting a hold of this movie is, was a process for Rob. Yes, yes, and it's it's so so interesting. I think this is going to be one of our. I, I I think this might be the highlight of our Martin Brest series because, of course, this month we're going to work through his filmography um, from the start, of course. Uh, we when when I said we did Gili and Meet Joe Black, those are his last two, I believe. I think it was Meet Joe Black then Gili. But the thing kind of comes down to, if you remember our Gili episode, I exposited so much about the history of Martin Brest. I talked about how I was in, intrigued and infatuated by his career, uh, the fact that it ends on Gili, and. I, I don't want to go back and rehash like I've done when we've talked about directors in the past, like Paul Bartel, Danny DeVito. I've always kind of done, you know, his their histories with each episode and kind of going through it. I think I gave a pretty good, complete synopsis of Martin Brest's history back in our Gili episode. So go check out Cinemodities episode 99 if you want to hear more of that. I think we have a better framework for this series because we've done this before. I want to talk about these movies, Zach, the four that we're going to discuss, in the frame that they lead to Gili. I think that's going to be a really interesting topic of conversation, that we are going to follow Martin Brest's career. And, of course, we're going to start today with, um, uh, what is it called? Cold Yesterdays is the movie we're discussing today. God um, damn it, I want to be the one that says that. This I is was, Vanilla was, Sky was, all over again. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> It's one of those great titles where you can just put in like all these antithetical ideas and just it works. Yes, and we're going to go through this filmography, and I think it's going to be interesting to discuss them and say, well, hey, how does this lead to Gili? Because we've talked about the history of Martin Brest, but now we can really talk about the works of Martin Brest. And if you're an astute listener of Cinemodities and or a Martin Brest fan, you will realize that there is one more Brest film in his filmography, then Monday's in this month. So we're going to have to cut one from a main episode. But don't worry. Rob's going to watch really them all. Cop. Well, I I, I think... Do, should, I, should I give it away which one I want to cut, Zach? Because there's one I really want to cut because it's so goddamn long. And it, uh, it starts with Hua. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we'll be covering Scent of a Woman. I don't know if there's anything there to talk about other than Al Pacino. We have to talk about Beverly Hills Cop in this series because, as I've said on this podcast before, that movie is a major hit. That movie almost changed the cinematic landscape. It created Eddie Murphy's career. But I think it is nothing short of a war crime. That movie is so bad. <laughs> so we will be covering Beverly Hills Cop. Um, we have to cover Hot Tomorrows, which we're doing today. We have to cover Going in Style, the original, not the fucking Zach Braff remake, which I, I refuse to watch. And we'll also do Midnight Run, because Midnight Run is actually a good movie, which is, I think, something... We're not doing Hot Dogs and Go Gone? Okay, thank you for bringing that up. 
We don't do short films, because we didn't do short films for Paul Bartel. We didn't do it for Danny DeVito. Hot Dogs for Gauguin is Martin Brest's first short film, and I fucking still cannot find a way to watch it. The, the most recent thing I've found is that Mubi has it in its library, its catalog. So Mubi, are you familiar with Mubi, M-U-B-I? Yeah. yeah. I, am, I have emailed Mubi and said, I want to see Hot Dogs for Gauguin, and I got an automated response that was like, sign up for a free week trial of Mubi. And I was like, I'm not going to sign up for shit until you're playing Hot Dogs for Gauguin. Okay, oh, I'm angry. That's I'm how very Mubi, angry. Oh, I forgot. I forgot about that because movie it's a rotating catalog. Yes, yes. So literally every like week I check movie for Hot Dogs for Gogan and it's like this is not playing yet. And I'm like, God damn. Hot Dogs for Gogan is the one Martin Breast thing I neither have in my possession nor seen. I've seen everything he's done. And I have not Have you okay? God damn it! I'm tried, fucking want Hot Dogs you, for Gogan! <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's like to want something and you can't have it. Um, the story of my life. Have you tried like going on Twitter and trying to find whoever like is the curator of like the thing on a monthly basis? Have no, you tried? No, that, like, that was my last step was contacting Mubi with their customer service. I need to. They're, get they're not going to know. They're, I, they're, exactly. You have to find someone that works there. Exactly. You have to find someone who works there who's in charge and like be like, hey, like, like I'm a big Martin Breast fan and like. Hope you can build a rapport <laughs> with them enough that like they'll they would be able to tell you like if there's any sort of rhyme or reason to how they pick things. That's all, all I want. It's 25 minutes long. I just want to see it. <laughs> I just want to see it one sec. <laughs> I, I just want to see it so I can record it and have it forever. Zach. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, oh I'm God. glad we got there. Uh, every time. Martin Bress comes up. It is a, a back doorway for me to once again ask our audience, fucking tell me how to find hot dogs for Gogan. That's the only Martin Bress thing I'm missing, and it drives me absolutely crazy. But in that same vein, speaking of completing filmographies, I do have to give a shout out and something that Zach mentioned before. Um, for this movie we're discussing today, Hot Tomorrow's Martin Bress' first feature film. This movie is almost impossible to find. I had to find it through a service that I've given a shout out to a podcast uh, on this podcast before, which is TrueTVMovies.net. If our astute listeners remember, this is how I finished up the Paul Bartel collection. Uh, this is how I found Shelf Life by Paul Bartel, his last movie. And this is also how I found Not for Publication by Paul Bartel. And I probably won't put the clip. Oh, who am I kidding? I'm going to put the clip in. You're the cat's meow. Meow. I mean, you need a than a cheetah. <sighs> you are the feline to whom I make a feline immediately. Cause, baby, you bring out the beast in me. <sighs> You're the cock of the walk. <laughs> You're just as regal as an eagle. <laughs> a pterodactyl. With whom I could be tactile, believe you me. Cause, baby, you bring out the beast in me. When it comes to the animal urge, no one can equal mine. For with you, the urge to merge is working overtime. You got me frisky as a pup. You got me lower than a boa. You're an opossum with whom my love could blossom in any tree. 
Because, baby, you bring out the beast in me. Mary, let's get to the end. No, no, this is my big solo. Animals are so absurd. When it comes to romance, it's all true, those things you've heard. Animals just want to dance. in me we would not have that movie in our repertoire zach if it was not for true tv movies.net and that was the same service through which i found and purchased hot tomorrows which i'm so glad i did because i have to say i love this movie let's get it out of the way once once i you know set up that we have to talk about at some point these martin breast movies in the vein of Gili, i am totally baffled that Martin Brest's first film could be this amazing, this real, this meaningful, and then he f- ends with Gili. So, before I throw it over to you, Zach, one of the quotes from this movie that I was thinking about saying at the start of it um, was, I'm not pissed off, I just wish you weren't so fucking stupid, that's all. Is that what you that's were delightful. thinking about that, me? That's delightful. When I when I pitched the Martin Breast series, I feel like you had to bite your tongue because I was like Zach. You know, uh, a little peek behind the curtain. Zach has chosen what three quarters of the year of twenty twenty one for cinemodities. Yes. So he had to give me some leeway, and I went Martin Breast series. Did you bite your tongue and say I'm not pissed? I just wish you weren't so fucking stupid, Rob. Nobody can find these movies. <laughs> That's that's the thing about Rob, everybody, is that it's very odd doing this sort of stuff with him because, like, don't get me wrong, I have my own obscure stuff, like real scary stories, people, like stuff that people haven't seen. But Rob picks stuff that, like, there's a difference between obscure and just inaccessible, and Rob tends to fall on the inaccessible side of the tracks. <laughs> I I do have extremes where I either go, let's watch hours of Animal Collective, or something literally nobody can find. <laughs> That's the thing about this. Like, this is going to be a very fascinating discussion because, like, I I don't know where this is going to go. I also remember when we did the Hudsucker proxy and you were, like, stunned that I picked a real movie for once. (laughs) Well, no, no, no. The difference was with the Hudsucker proxies. Like, with a title like that, it was like, oh, God, it's going to be weird, like, Rob crap. And it was a love story. Oh, no. Yeah, I looked into it. Like, it was a real movie. And I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like – I thought it was going to be some, like, I don't know, some weird experimental nonsense that he found on YouTube. And it wasn't. And I was very happy about that. And this is <laughs> in that same vein, except that it's literally, this is literally an inaccessible film that I don't, I, I, I literally don't know the last time this was publicly accessible. Like, I just don't know when. And that's shocking for a movie. Oh, yeah. It's, it is 
kind of incredible. I, I think you mentioned it earlier, Zach, and it's something we have to set up with the context of this movie because I'm assuming neither of us have any context with this movie. I found it no, because Rob, I like Martin not. Brest, and, and or Zach knows about it because I'm interested in Martin Brest, so our context is the same. But honestly, like, I delved into, I really tried to find, like, you know, when did people see this movie? Did people see this movie? Apparently it was the 1977 New York Film Festival. That's yep, it. Because Martin Brest was from the Bronx, yeah. And uh, other than that, I like I mentioned before, I've tried to read a lot of reviews. Most of the reviews are from the 70s, from the early 80s, I guess when this might have been in circulation. The reviews are so goddamn vacuous, they have nothing to say about the movie. They're just like, it's grim! It's about death! And I'm like, okay, like, is anybody going to mention the fact that it's basically like, what if Laurel and Hardy were obsessed with death? And they're like, no, it's a movie. There's even one review that I found, like, from the New York Film Festival, where the review of this movie turns into a review of another movie at the New York, 1977 New York Film Festival. And I was like, wait, wh- wh- I was like, wait, how did we get here? So, yeah, I, I think, Zach, we are breaking ground in the Hot Tomorrows category. And I'm very excited about that. I mean, our audience might not be excited about it. I can hear the downloads are not excited about it right now. But we're doing it. We're, we're doing it. Hot Tomorrows. Cold Yesterdays. I didn't have any Cold others. Um, lukewarm Present? <laughs> Would that be the <laughs> third one? I mean, you can't really do a lot of opposites of Tomorrows. Like, we, we don't have as much uh, versatility as we did with Vanilla Sky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good old Butterscotch Horizons. Um, no, like that's the thing about this movie that I find is the most. I think it, I think it was Butterscotch kind of... Vista that we said. I think it was Chocolate oh, okay. Horizons. Okay, okay, okay. God, but like I think this is like much like how like like what real scary stories was for Rob. It's kind of like I I even though I think the movie's very very unique. And I find it all the more fascinating that it came out in the same year that Eraserhead did because I feel this film has a lot. I don't two, know to call two it. Two weeks after, actually, Eraserhead. Is it, is it really? Yeah, Eraserhead wow. was middle of March. This was April 1st. Wow. So, man, imagine being a film goer in New York in this time period. Wow. It must have been fun. Like this, like this. Imagine seeing this like in one month and the next month seeing Eraserhead being like, wow. And then a couple – like what? A month later, you get Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Man, what, what an incredible time to be alive. And you get this, oh, God. Um, like I, I that's the thing about this movie is like there is like the context is that there is no context. Like that's the thing. Like there's no like has this ever been released on any version of home video? I I could not find anything anywhere. Like literally, True TV Movies is the only place I have ever found a copy of this movie. And I and and as everybody knows on this podcast, if you're an astute listener, I can search for some serious movies. And this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to find. But like what I mean by that though is that like clearly what we were looking at is a VHS four by three version. Because there are certain yeah. times where certain characters' faces are cut off in a way that full screen presentations are doing. So I'm thinking this has to be Either a VHS copy or I don't think it's a TV rip. It doesn't feel like a TV rip. It feels like a black. It feels like a VHS or a late. I don't even know if it'd be Laserdisc. I I would agree with you there. You have some more experience in knowing what kind of versions we have. But yeah, you're right. This does not feel like a TV rip. This feels like it's some kind of weird VHS printer copy that was circulated for some reason. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of the odd thing about this. Like I kind of, it feels like VHS, but like there's really nothing like I can find about this. Like that's like you would think like with something like this, it would trickle out in some way. There'd be somebody selling some version of this, which obviously what Rob did. Rob, did you ever explain how you found that website? Like, like what led you? Like, what was the rabbit's hole that led you to them? Ah, I, I might have back in our Paul Bartel series, but that was the idea that there was a few, uh, two Paul Bartel movies that I could not find, and so, um, I, I took a cue from you actually, Zach, because when we were talking about finding these weird, obscure movies, you know, Paul Bartel's stuff, uh, Hot Dogs for Gogan, I remember you said something like, "Oh, you have to find like a uh, a film society and see if they have a print of it or something like that," and. Th- that led me to not really look into film societies. It lo- led me to look into more of, well, are there any websites that are selling kind of obscure movies? And that's kind of where I started to look for um, certain services. And I found a few, but TrueTVMovies.net was the one that um, actually was really good because I, I like actually you know purchased something from them and uh, emailed with a person at that company website I, I don't know and i asked him for other stuff we got a we have a great text file in our dropbox of all the movies they have um and it was just kind of a, a very personable experience but but yeah I, I was just like well how do i find obscure movies maybe it comes down to searching for obscure websites if that makes sense <laughs> yeah like okay that's fair because I, I found on OriginalTrilogy.com, because of course everything comes back to Star Wars, on a thread called, What is the rarest video in your collection? Somebody wrote Hot Tomorrows. Ooh, nice. So it was it was released on VHS at some point. I cannot find a single time it's ever been sold online, but it was it, – it does exist. Right on, right on. So everybody, so, go so get your VHS copy and, and watch along with us. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to find because like, we're doing a lot of like real time investigating. Yeah, this is this is I think th- this episode because uh, this is the least ex- this might be the least accessible movie we've ever discussed. Yeah, I know I know the the uh, the dance number at the end is on YouTube, and uh, Mystic Knights Oingo Boingo, the in the Paradise Ballroom is on YouTube. But yeah, the whole movie is not on YouTube. This is this is going to be the most ridiculous episode of Cinemodities because, one, we will eventually – don't worry, folks. We will eventually talk about this movie. But when we talk about the movie, it's going to be a lot of Rob. Zach is the one who's trying to figure out what the hell this movie is. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like I, like, I, like, I kind of told Rob this is definitely going to be his thing to kind of like – to traverse through. Yeah, that's weird. Hot Tomorrow's – yeah, it's not even showing up. Like, like That's the thing. Like It's not even showing up something that's been sold recently. It's a. It might be one of those. If you have a VHS of this, it's a physical cinemodity. <laughs> yeah, but like I would expect, like I would expect at least like a copy of the VHS to be online somewhere. Oh, sure, sure. Like we've we've discussed this what before with like Ruben and Ed. Even that you can find some weird rips of. You know. That's what I mean. Like that's the weird things that like I can't think of an actual movie that did not get like that doesn't exist. Like on like on some vision again, again. If it is a physical copy, like that's it, there's something odd about this. Like it's almost as if like is there any history on like why it's been suppressed? Is there a rights issue? Not that I could find. I think that goes back to what we were saying. There's so little information about this movie that it's it's kind of like because I that was that's what I was doing yesterday when I was preparing for this recording. Um, because peek behind the curtain, I've watched this now six times. 
in preparation for this. I love this movie, but I was really <laughs> trying to dive into, well, why the hell was this so difficult for me to find? Because that's the thing that always baffles me. When things are difficult to find, it's like, why? I always want to know why. When we live in the internet age, why can I not find this? And I know Zach's coming at it from a little different perspective of, you know, when was it sold on VHS and stuff like that. But anytime something's really tough for me to download, I'm always intrigued by that. Well, the thing, like going off the IMDb trivia, it basically says things like the film was financed by an AFI grant. Yep. Uh, they, um, a Warner Brothers executive put 15000 up. And there's stuff like that. And it's like, okay, so that would make the rights a really muddied issue. Did did Martin Bress ever write like a biography or anything? Like, is there any, has he published anything that would explain, like, is there anything on this, like, and not even from him specifically, but more just like films of this era from like first time directors, like stuff that would mention like a racer head film, uh, major filmmakers of the seventies or from the seventies and eighties that got their starts in the seventies. Not that I could find. I mean, Beck, like I said in our Gili episode, I the the most comprehensive article and most information about Martin Brest that I've ever found is an old Playboy article. And I know I referenced that a lot in our Gili episode, which gave a lot of context on Martin Brest, but that is literally the only thing I've ever found. Because at yes. once once he does because this is you know, this doesn't exist. Going in style barely exists. When he does Beverly Hills Cop that becomes his whole career. And that's the well, only yeah. thing you can find information about is him talking about Beverly Hills Cop. And yeah, in our Julie episode, we talk a little bit about how he was supposed to direct war games. He's the person that signed on Matthew Broderick, that type of stuff. But that's it. Once you get past that, you go into Beverly Hills Cop, that becomes his career, and that's all the information I can find about him. And he never published anything about books or anything? Like, he never... Like, he's still alive, right? Yeah, he is still alive, but if you remember from our Sheely episode, his best friends don't even know where he's living. Okay. He is he has become a recluse since Sheely, which, Martin Brest, we hope you listen to this episode, because this will be the only podcast ever about Hot Tomorrows. We hope Did you, you listen to this any- episode and you want to talk to us. I would love – it's on my goddamn bucket list. I would love to talk to Martin Brest. Not, I'm not saying interview. I'm just saying, like – Let's get a coffee. Let's sit down. I'm not going to make fun of you for Gili because Gili is a fucking masterpiece. I think that everybody needs to watch that movie, even if it's an academic exercise. Most of his other movies are actually really good, you know, excluding Meet Joe Black and Scent of a Woman. Hooah! But I would love just to pick Martin Brest's brain for 15 minutes at least. He's such an interesting person. Interesting career. Yeah, I can't even find any other movie podcast that ever done anything on this. I, I, I pulled a page from your book, Zach, and I, I was doing some looking around, and I was like, Hot Tomorrows, who's talked about it? And nobody has talked about it. <laughs> That's, but, there's, but there's something – okay, there, there's a saying that goes when, there's, when you encounter – especially entertainment and media, which is such a narcissistic industry. When you find – when there's a black hole of no information, that usually means it's there on purpose. Sure, sure. The absence of anything usually means it was someone who went after it, and that's what makes this all peculiar. Oh, no. I, you're, you're not wrong, especially because – you know, I, I think that we've, we've been dancing around the topic, but we have to say that this movie basically doesn't exist, and it's not because Martin Brest is a no-name, you know? Like, I get it. Me, 
and inferiority complex, my cups on cockroaches video, that's going to be lost to the internet. That will always be on YouTube, but no one's going to talk about it because we're no names. Martin Brest has a big name. Like, like it's like he Paul Bartel with name. private parts, you know? It's like Paul Bartel goes on to direct things that get a lot of acclaim, so people look back at private parts. The difference and the craziness is that Martin Brest makes one of the biggest movies ever in Beverly Hills Cup, and nobody talks about Hot Tomorrows. It's insane. You know who I would talk to about this? This might be really strange, considering that we used to talk about them a lot. I would talk to the person that would curate for Turner Classic Movie Underground. Like, oh. you, sometimes you have to take take the out or talk to somebody from Criterion and just be like, hey, like, I run a podcast about obscure movies. And, like, that's the thing. Like, we do have some level, like, considering we've been doing this now for almost three years, there is a level of credibility that we have now. Um, yeah, like, yeah. We're not just doing <laughs> oh, this sorry. Hua. Yeah, hua. I don't know. Like that's the thing. Like, like I, again, there is no information on this movie, and, and this is crazy. Too, it's too unique of a movie. It's too well made of a movie for it to be this obscure. Somebody, somebody is stepping on this, and I have a feeling okay. that it's. I don't know. Think about it. somebody like Martin Brush too. Also has connections. Remember, just because these people go into hiding doesn't mean they're also not pulling str- pulling the strings from behind the curtain. Absolutely, like we talked about in our Gili episode. Um, Martin Brest is good friends with Ben Affleck. He gets thanked in the Argo acceptance speech. Have you also t- thought about talking to your friends from that website, asking them where they pulled, where they got this from? Uh, that is probably my next step. I've never asked where they got these things, and um, I, I and think you're not that's... you're doing it in an academic sense because you're trying to figure out like where it stems from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that that's I mean this this might be the start. Of, you know, Rob, like, you know, uh, I'm thinking of the beginning of um, Not For Publication. Because, baby, you bring out the beast to me. But the beginning of Not For Publication is Nancy Allen running, like, down a pimp being chased by uh, her or his um, prostitutes trying to kill him because she's not – they're not getting enough of the the take. And I want to do that. I want to chase down Martin Brest. I want to know – why he what's next like what is he doing oh my god is that i i can't even articulate how much i want to just become a martin breast investigative journalist (laughs) biography and he has nobody's ever written a biography on him no not that i've ever found it's it's that it's that fucking playboy article that's it that's all that exists about him basically yeah, no. I know. I, my best advice would be finding people that are in that world of digging up obscure titles and um, doing that. Even writing to the people who did like Wicked World and Scary Movie. I think yeah. Like, hey, oh God, whoever is this writing to them, being like, "Hey, like I'm looking for this. Like, like would you know where to begin? Because there's no information on this movie." Just, just for our audience, you mean Scary Movie 1991, not the Wayans one. No, please do not contact the Wayne Brothers regarding yeah, Hot Tomorrows. I, I think our audience might get confused when you mention Wicked World and Scary Movie in the same phrase. It's not the scary movie everybody knows. <laughs> that's, but, like, that, like, that, but that's the thing that's so fascinating. You have so much crap right now being dug up and like remastered. Yep, yep. And yet you have this, which is genuinely unique and well-made. It doesn't exist. Like I just can't, I know like I have a tendency on this podcast to, to kind of like go to philosophical immediately yet like i just cannot figure this one out like it's because i'm watching this and i'll be honest with you folks like i i've been tired like i didn't really like i fell asleep a couple of times not because the movie's not good but because i'm just exhausted no yeah like, fair. we're still this, like, we are recording this in 2020 the worst year ever so <laughs> yes as rob once put it zach is having a rough 2020 
Um, and but the ending is nothing short of phenomenal. And I'm glad that's on YouTube. I hope somebody go like if you're listening to this, go watch that. It's great. Oh my god, um, it's we'll, we'll get. Oh but like, my god, it's so good. This movie's so yeah. goddamn good, Zach. And that's not just because it I spent is. sixteen dollars on it. This movie is actually fucking phenomenal. Yes. Um. Okay, Rob. Why don't you explain to everybody what this movie's about? Oh, okay, okay. Let's get to the actual movie. Uh. Well, I mean, do we need to do a plot breakdown? Everybody knows what this movie's about. Yes, Rob. <laughs> yes, Rob. Because there's literally like two sentences about it on the entire internet. Oh man. Okay. Um. So I, I guess the first thing to, pl- to say is uh, the plane, the plane. <laughs> No, we'll we'll get to Hector uh, Villa 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 Hayes Villa Hayes. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but we'll get to him. So Albrecht, the, uh, Albrecht, yes. So this is a very short black and white movie. I think it's about seventy minutes long. If you you know take out the last minute of credits, it is about a writer who has been displaced from the Bronx, New York, which is, of course, where Martin Brest is from and where Rob is from as well. Uh, He is in L.A., in Hollywood, trying to make it as a writer. We don't really know what he's writing for, but that doesn't doesn't matter. This main character, Michael, is obsessed. I I actually don't want to use the term obsessed. He's intrigued by the concept of death. His friend comes out to visit him for Christmas Eve and Christmas, And they have a night on the town on Christmas Eve meeting just a cast of characters at a bar, uh, at a mortuary, uh, back at the bar, at a coffee shop or a diner, I should say. And we basically get the musings of a man that is uncertain about how to feel with death between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. I think that's the best minuscule summary I can give it without getting into major plot details. Is there anything I missed or anything you wanted to add, Zach? Nope, nope, not at all, because I I don't even know what this movie's really about. Well, I I guess that's where... I I wanted to start this way by just giving the the breakdown of this, um, the the very, you know, kind of top-line item breakdown that I just gave. And I want to throw it over to you, Zach. You've mentioned it. We've kind of danced around it. I know I've said I love this movie. Uh, I'm really, really intrigued and enthralled by this movie. But what did you think? I know you've mentioned that you said you didn't really know what was going on. You said it's unique. You said it's pheno- the ending is phenomenal. But overall, like, what are your thoughts on Hot Tomorrows? Uh, oh, God, because it starts off really, like, it, it feels weirdly ahead of its time. And by ahead of its time, I mean, like, stuff you wouldn't really see until, like, the 80s, maybe even, like, early 90s. Like, it feel, like, I got a American Werewolf in London vibe from this. Ooh. From the very beginning with the two guys, they're having, like, you can tell they've been long friends. There's, some, there's really good chemistry amongst all the actors. And like, you get that vibe, like, okay, they're friends. They Like, you can tell there's a history there. And you have them kind of going back and forth, and they're kind of just, like you said, they're meandering around on Christmas Eve, and they're kind of just looking for things to do. Again, it's just two guy, two young guys. How old are they supposed to be, what, in their early 20s, I'm guessing? Yeah, yeah, they got to be early to early to mid-20s. They're young, you know, they're trying to find their way, that type of thing. Yeah, and so, like, they're kind of sitting there meandering around. They go to a bar, they go to a mortuary home, all this sort of different stuff. And the whole time, we have our main character... And he's sitting there kind of like interjecting with different kind of little like retellings of things that have happened throughout his life. And you know it has a purpose because he's very philosophical, and that's kind of the part where obviously I related to the main character because it's like, okay, this deep thing of like, okay, he has a picture of what his teacher from elementary school in his kitchen at home. Yep, who would always ask him, do you think life is a joke? Yep. 
Yeah. And he has all these different things like that, though. But he also has a, a I don't even know what to call it, like a one to one replica of the Grim Reaper in his living room. And at first, when I saw that very early in the film, I think it's what in the first couple minutes, I'm like, yeah. oh, it's just be some sort of like, mis- like physical like manifestation of death. And it's like, no, it's just like this decoration that he has in his home, which like, I have okay, to say neat. I want so bad. I yes, want. We, yes, the whole time as I'm the, the whole time as I'm watching this, I can hear Rob saying, "I want a real skeleton. In, I want a real skull in my in my life." The, yeah, this movie pumps it up because I've said to many people in my life and on this podcast before, I want a real human skull and the death certificate for who that skull belongs to. I would love to own that, but this movie pumps it up and says, "No, fucking go all out, get the whole goddamn skeleton," and I'm like. Hell and, yeah! And then put a black cloak. Then give it a black cloak and a what? A, a Skype. <laughs> if there was anything that you would get in trouble for, it's like the things in my life that I've thought about is like real human bones dressed up like the Grim Reaper in your apartment and blood in your freezer. Because <laughs> I think I think I've mentioned on this to you, Zach, before in this podcast. I've always been interested in like creating art with blood like blood as a medium like writing with blood but how do you keep blood in your apartment and not get in trouble for it you know (laughs) unless it's your own i guess yeah but i'm not ready to just you know siphon off some of my blood and keep it in the freezer so i can draw with it (laughs) but no so yeah right off the bat i think you're agreeing with me zach uh you start this movie you you see uh michael writing about his his aunt and and smoking cigarettes and his obsession with death intrigue with death we'll get to why i don't think it's obsession but then you see the giant grim reaper and zach's like yeah yeah this is uh this is rob going through the turnstiles right here (laughs) (laughs) no it's like it's intriguing on that level but you also have a lot of that's the thing about this is that it's weird, but it also meanders a lot. Like you have a lot of just back and forth of stuff. Um, it feels, and I know this is obviously a, a death. You couldn't describe it like this until after the fact, but it feels very Lynchian in that, like you have the the little person who's drinking the shot glasses of wine, which is just funny in and of itself and he's just yelling at the bartender and just yelling about just life in general yep you all like it's it, there's all there, it's very yep. lynching like and that's the weird thing to call something before lynch before that even became a term <laughs> yes. you have the what cabaret you have the cabaret singers and dancers that have the very similar makeup to the character in blue velvet has the mystic knights of oingo boingo Yes, like we have the what's the character in, in Blue Velvet that sings the Ray Orbison song into like oh, the like what the uh I don't remember but I know who you mean. You know Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Like you have that same sort of just like vaudevillian makeup that makes them look very ghoulish and I'm like, oh like and that's the thing about this is that like I don't know if uh, again, like any sort of film you want it restored just for preservation state uh sake. But, like, I don't know because, like, is part of the viewing experience seeing it in this very muddled state adding to the mystique of the film or is it detracting from it? I I have to say that I think that it adds to it because uh, this is going to lead directly into what I think this movie is about and what I think kind of Martin Brest, his career starts as with this and his next movie going in style. Um, But – we get two times in this movie, once at the beginning, once at the end, where we are we have our characters watching a movie and they say we are looking into the land of the dead. And that 
is something that I think is exemplified by how such a poor quality this exists in that we are literally looking into something that is dead, whether it be the characters. I don't, well, I don't think, you know, Ken, Ken Lerner, our main character, he's not dead. Um, I think, you know, uh, a lot of the main actors of this movie, well, Hector Villahay is, he's, he's dead, unfortunately. But really, we are looking into a glimpse of, well, when you see a movie, you are looking into a land of the past of the dead. And that's a really interesting idea that we get with the, the quality of this movie. So I, I think it adds to it, for sure. I'm not saying this is Goosebumps level, because Goosebumps I just like to see in bad quality because I'm a weirdo. This actually adds something to the theme of the movie, I think. I, I don't disagree, but at the same time also, it makes me wonder just like how much of that is just that we're not, we're not seeing detail that's there. Sure, sure. I, I, that's, that's the, that's kind of the bane of this argument is that we really don't know. Right. And that's, but like, that's my thing though. Cause like for the longest time, like this is kind of like an argument I had about 10 years ago and I kind of realized it's, it's like a weird logical fallacy and that I'm like, Oh, like there's no point to like getting movies that were made beyond like modern eras in HD because the, like the film was not intended to be seen in that sort of like intense, like focus mm-hmm. or crispness. And then, like, you see things like Lawrence of Arabia, Jaws, and you're like, oh, I get it. Like, oh, these films always look that sharp. It's just that VHS and DVD were never able to portray it accurately. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing where, like, okay, like, like, the Goosebumps might be a weird sort of, like, I don't know, maybe not the best example because it's the idea that like, okay, goosebumps was filmed in like, like standard definition. It was never intended to last as long as it has. Yeah. Where obviously films like obviously this was filmed on 35 millimeter. Like I would love to know if the original negative exists and if it doesn't, there's gotta be a, you would hope that maybe there's a print of it out there somewhere. Sure. Um, like that's a big issue too when it comes to a lot of these films is that like original prints of it might not exist. Like that's just kind of one of those things. Like if if, if it didn't get any sort of theatrical release, because did you look at like any sort of box office take on this? Was this I, ever released into theaters? Or no, I couldn't find anything. A, a, I I only found that New York Film Festival information. So that's the thing. So it might have been solely a festival darling. Yeah, yeah. If that's the case, then there might only have ever been maybe like a half a dozen prints of it out there. Which is why we got to talk to Martin Brest. God damn it. Well, I want, I want Martin ha- Brest to be my Jodorowsky. Like, I want to hang out with him, and then one night he's like, hey, you want to see the fucking original print of Hot Dogs for Gogon? Like, that's what I want, Zach. <laughs> I don't know though like that's a thing like we're dealing with like I honestly cannot think of another film where it doesn't exist to this level yeah no you're just like real yeah I got the thing like L think about we have VHS copies of L's floating around out there Mm -hmm. but at least that was schlock they could feed to video stores in the in the 80s and 90s and you had a star in it with um Bunce McGavin, well, of course. Well, yes, Bunce McGavin. But like that's the thing I can think of. Like I I cause I found one thing online. I'm not sure if you came across it. Was it inducted into the li- Library of Congress? Ooh, I I don't think I saw that. I found it in some level of like registry, but I don't okay, know. Okay. But I also know just because something's inducted into the Library of Congress, it doesn't mean that they have a print of it. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're right. Yeah. It's more of like an honorary like accomplishment yep. as opposed to like they're, they're keeping it under lock and key. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't even know. Like, I, uh, I'm trying to think of just different <laughs> ways we could sit there access this. No, because I can, I would love to see this in better quality. Oh, yeah, 100%. I just don't even know. Because like, even looking like at the credits, like the credits are hard to read. Like, I'm trying to see who's listed as being the owner of this. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. No, you're, like, you're, that's not, the thing. you're not wrong. Yeah. I don't know, Rob. This is this is fascinating. But getting put back to the film at large, <laughs> um, and when it comes to the idea, like yes, we have like we have our main character looking at Laurel and Hardy, and the idea of like it's it's the idea of looking at dead actors. Yeah. Um. There's a lot of that. There's a lot. There, there's a fat. Like you said, I think you're right. There's intrigue. There's fascination. I think obsession's probably too strong of a word. Even though I think having a uh, skeleton dressed as the Grim Reaper in your living room, I think probably would lend. Probably lean more toward the well, well, one, uh, obsession me, side me, of the tracks. Let's let's start there. Let's start there because I I have I I love this movie and I think this movie gets on the same level as when we talked about seconds back in last October. That there's something going on here and that's what we need to get at. You know, it's not just um, something um, superfluous or superficial or, or top layer. There's a lot going on in this movie. I love the fact that this movie takes place on Christmas Eve and for the last 15 minutes, Christmas Day. But I love the fact that our main character, it's established right off the bat that he has this Grim Reaper, life-size, taller than him, taller than all of our characters that we get to see next to it, in his apartment on Christmas Eve. There is a great idea that instead of on Christmas Eve, a Christmas tree... You have a Grim Reaper. Because what is a Christmas tree other than a symbolism of death? A Christmas tree is something you cut out of the goddamn ground and you're letting die in your house, apartment, whatever, just so you can make something look good. The parallelism between the Grim Reaper residing in your apartment as decoration and a Christmas tree is fantastic in this movie. And I think that's where it starts. And I want to compare this to also our opening monologue from Michael, our main character, played by Ken Lerner, who's just been in everything since this movie. He's just like, uh, he's never had like a lead role in a TV show. He's just that guy on a TV show, basically. Um, every TV show ever, it seems. If you look at his IMDb, it's insane. But when we start the movie, he's writing. He's clacking away at his typewriter, and he's talking about his, his uh, Tanta Ethel, so Aunt Ethel. And uh, I have to say, when I first saw this movie and the quality we have, I thought he was saying Conta Ethel, and I was like, that's not okay. Well, not, <laughs> well, not, not okay, but, you know, that's weird. But it's Tanta Ethel, according to the credits. And he's writing about her, and as he's writing, he mentions some Yiddish phrase, and he says, like, Ich Kimbalt. And he's like, Ich Kimbalt is Yiddish for... And he pauses in his writing. Right in the middle of the argument, he suddenly sat up in bed and looked at the open window. After staring intensely for a few seconds, he said in a calming voice, All right, Zlata, ich kimbalt, ich kimbalt. Zlata was the name of his wife who died almost 20 years earlier. Ich kimbalt is Yiddish for... Ich kimbalt, ich kimbalt is Yiddish for, I'm coming already, I'm coming already. And that's a really important moment. Because if you're writing, and you're saying a Yiddish phrase, you should know what that Yiddish phrase means. But he pauses. 
And we don't know as, as an audience if he's pausing because he doesn't remember or he's trying to recall what that Yiddish phrase means or if he's making it up. And that really starts to set up that we have some uncertainty in our main character. I see this opening scene and that uncertainty from our writer as the same goddamn thing as when Gene Wilder does his cane trick in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. From this point on, we don't know if our main character is certain or not, if he's trustworthy or not. And I think that sets up the entire theme of this movie. We're seeing it through Michael's eyes. He's our main character, of course. And this whole movie gets at how do you feel and deal with death? This movie is about death. I think we can agree on that, right, Zach? Without, of course, you know, I got into the details more, but do you agree that the the conceit of this movie is we're dealing with the loss of life? Well, I think death plays a major role in all this. You can't argue that. It's kind of the – it's the impetus of the main character. But I think by the end, you you can't help but feel that, like, it, it's it's all a joke, like that ending number really not that it turns everything on its head, but it's the idea that like, okay, you take this entire thing with our character that's fascinated with death and it basically ends in like a burlesque house dance. I think uh, Zach and I don't have our cameras on right now. I did a little like kind of confused look. I think that that ending number is the acceptance of death. Is it? Yeah. I, I think the whole movie is Michael. <laughs> our main character is uncertain about death. He's intrigued by it, but he's uncertain how to feel about it. And he meets all these characters that have very steadfast opinions about death. And the last musical number is his true acceptance of it. So so I, I want to bring up a moment. I think probably the most important moment in the movie is when him and Lewis are arguing outside of the diner at the end. When Lewis is really getting at him, he's like, why are you doing this? You're going to night school to learn about death. You're, 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 you're talking to fucked up college people, you know, and that type of thing. I think that's the, that is the most important part of the movie because it's playing it as Lewis saying, you know, you're fucked up. You're thinking about death a lot and that's not good. I need to help you. But the actual reality is that Michael's the healthier one because he's thinking about death. He's not flippant about it like Lewis is. But I think this is the part where we're kind of missing the context of the film because we're trying to figure out what like, – okay, you know obviously more about Martin Brest's filmography than I do. Is that a theme throughout all of his films? I guess outside of what, Meet Joe Black? Well, well, we— Does that show up again in any of the other films? Yes. Going in Style, which we're going to talk about next week, is very much about death. Beverly Hills Cop is it... a fucking atrocity that has nothing to do with anything because it's a garbage movie. Um, but even Scent of a Woman is about death. It's about losing—well, maybe more about losing—it's about death in a more humanic sense of losing sight because Al Pacino's character is blind. But yeah, I, I think Martin Brest, this is something I'm glad you bring up. Martin Brest, his his main idea, it seems, at the start of his, his career and in some of his movies, most of his movies, is death, is the loss of life, is what does it mean? Because this is a really interesting idea. I, I have always been intrigued by, um, you know, once again, as, as Zach said to himself that I'm uh, inferring, he's like, wow, this is a Rob movie. Rob has always been in, enticed by the idea of death. I'm basically Michael from this movie. I love the idea of, you know, 
the finality of death. It's one of the only handful of things that we have in this world that is still finite. Think about it. In the modern age, you can lose a limb, and now there are people figuring out how to make robotic limbs. The only things that we have that are truly finite are death and dementia. Like, like death is such an interesting concept, and Martin Brest gets at a lot of that in this movie and his movies. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I really don't. Well, I, I guess my, my big take on this movie, just before we jump into scenes and stuff like that, is that we have a main character who is uncertain about how to feel in regard to death, in the concept of death. He meets a lot of characters that have different takes on it, you know. Um, I, I think the best way to put it is that Michael is the uncertainty of how to deal with death. He's our main character. Because as an audience, that's what we that's why we're watching the movie. We're trying to figure out, you know, what is what's this what's the deal with death? You know, Jerry Seinfeld, what's up with death? Lewis is the flippancy and eventual rejection of death. When, you know, he has that scene where he's just driving his car crazy and Michael's like, what are you doing that for? It's dangerous. And then uh, later on, Lewis is like, we don't need to think about death. It's going to happen. I'm going to send you this postcard when I get there. Uh, We have Tony. We find out that Tony, the guy in the bar, um, he has grief that comes with death because his wife is dead. We have Hervé Villahez, who's the acceptance of death. I love the fact that the Grim Reaper in Michael's apartment and our little person, Hervé Villahez, are dressed in the same exact way. And Hervé Villahez has the great line, the thing about death is, no matter how absurd or intense it might be, it can't be bad. He's the acceptance. Polly is the, the woman at the bar. She's the one who's totally just like, I don't want to deal with this. Like, I'm innocence. Every character he meets has a different form of death playing into his mindset. And when we get the climax of the film, when Lewis dies, spoiler alert for a movie nobody can fucking watch, Lewis dies in the car accident, Michael has to actually deal with what his interest in death manifests as. And we almost, not almost, we do, we get this great cascading, telescoping series of events that hone in on how do you deal with death. Because think about it, the movie starts with Michael writing about death. It's something that he's doing creatively. It transitions into the flippancy of death when he talks to Lewis with the car scene, with, you know, him, Lewis being like, whatever, you know, I'm, when I'm dead, I'll send you a postcard. Like, he's very flippant about it. It gets into Hervé Villahez in the club scene where he's really talking about death and accepting it and saying, you know, you don't understand it. It goes back to the grief of death and the knowledge of death when we talk to Tony and when they go to the mortuary. And then it goes to the actuality of death when Tony dies, and then it ends up at the old folks' home, the retirement home, which is the spot right before death. It's this telescoping series of events that leads him to realize that the only way you can be healthy is know that death is a part of life, and that's what the final musical number is. Oh, okay. Well, I get on board with that. I love this movie, Zach. Did you tell? Could you tell? <laughs> All right, Rob. <clears throat> While you were going on your diatribe, I mean describing things in this film, I fa- <laughs> there's a website I found called DVD Lady, and it DVD says they have a DVD. It, it's 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 essentially probably what you have, but it's a it's a DVD R. I don't know if it's better quality though. Should I buy it? It's Is the movie. <laughs> I don't know. It, it depends. Like this is one of those times where I would. Oh, it's just basically taking. Um, yeah, it's taking images from IMDb. 
Uh, that's the weird thing too. Even the the images that IMDb has aren't even good images. They don't have hot dogs for Gogan on DVD, lady. I'm very upset. <laughs> Did you look? <laughs> yeah, I just I just searched for for that on DVD, lady, and they don't have it. Uh, I don't know, Rob. Is it worth getting this for fifteen dollars and seeing if it's in any better quality, or is this gonna be like my L? If anyone would, it be me, Zach. <laughs> I don't know. It's I, I, if I can get this in better quality, just slightly, I'm willing to roll the dice. It's a, I so so you're in agreement. This is a great movie, right? Yes, yes. Nice. Do we need to go through this again? I just, I just, I just love hearing when I pick things and you actually enjoy them. It's so rare, Zach. <laughs> I know it, it's when Rob picks obscure nonsense that drives me nuts. Oh, this this movie is such a great reflection on what death is to a person. Is it's it's fantastic, and this is I'm glad. I want to bring this back because, like I said at the start of this, this is kind of the anchor point for this. Now that you've seen this movie, Zach, now that you've heard my take on it, or let my take wash through your ears as you've been Googling about this movie, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this being the first Martin Brest film versus Gili being the last? Like I said, that's kind of what the framework of the series I want to be. As we work through Martin Brest's earlier works, we have to realize that he ends on Gili. What are your thoughts on that, just in general? Oh, God. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I, exactly. I mean, that, that's the fun of this, because I think we said in our Gili episode, how did he get, how did anybody get there? <laughs> well, I think it's like any sort of filmmaker that starts off experimental and they get absorbed into the Hollywood machine. It's like, how does the guy who creates THX 1138 end up creating Jar Jar Binks? They well, got absorbed by the machine. I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because let's take the same year, 1977, not George Lucas, but David Lynch. Martin Brest clearly gets absorbed into the studio system when he does Beverly Hills Cop. And I what think, year was that? I think 86 was Beverly Hills Cop? 85, right. 86? But here's, here's the thing that I have to ask you, Zach. When you watched this movie, 1977, Hot Tomorrows, you clearly had to pick up on the warbling, weird carnival music that David Lynch uses oh, yeah. in Eraserhead. Oh, of course, Rob. Yes, it's, of it's, it, might, it might be our favorite sound ever. You got anything in the house? Nothing. How much money you have? A couple of dollars. No, exactly, huh? Not bad. How much you got? Uh... For both of us, we love that noise. Well, my my version of favorite has quotation marks around. It. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess mine too. My favorite sound is anything in reverse. So, uh, uh, but but you you cannot watch this movie if you are familiar with David Lynch's early work and not go, oh, hey, warbling carnival music. That's very David Lynch. Here, here's something I wanted to pitch to you. I think works for this movie in particular. I think there's a lot of similarities between the uniqueness, not the movies, the uniqueness of this and Eraserhead as directorial debuts. Martin Brest, of course, goes on in the studio system and makes Beverly Hills Cop, which is a a banger like what that movie makes like fucking 500 million dollars in the 80s against like a 30 million dollar budget and it's insane david lynch does the same thing he goes to the studio but he makes dune and then yeah. david lynch says i never want to do that again where martin Brest says okay this is my money maker i can make studio films do you think that's the difference between martin Brest and david lynch 
Probably. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. Again, it's it's the idea. That also, well, again, I think it's also personalities. Like we again think about it. David Lynch is very much a, a character. Like we 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 know who he is. Yes. Martin Brest doesn't have a third of an identity that David Lynch has in the <laughs> pop culture sphere. Um, okay, would it be the I, greatest? I get, would it would it would be the greatest podcast ever? Me and you interviewing Martin Brest and David Lynch at the same time. Greatest podcast ever. Cool. We wouldn't be able to do it justice. Well, nobody could, so it might as well be us. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. But no, I, I couldn't help, like, looking at early Martin Brest, looking at early David Lynch, that their careers diverge at the advent of the studio system. And of course, you know, the David Lynch— the, that. I think it's success. I think well, it's, they diverge at the sense of, like, what would David Lynch's success? Success. Advent was not the right word. You're, you're, you're right. I think that, you know— what David Lynch de- gets Dino De Laurentiis for Dune, Martin Brest gets whoever the hell for Beverly Hills Cop, and that's Satan. a diverging point. Satan, Satan, <laughs> yes, yes. If anybody could make Beverly Hills Cop, it's Satan. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I'm so intrigued by looking at this Hot Tomorrow's, looking at Eraserhead, and going, wow. There is so much going on in both of these movies. And I, I think, you know, well, don't get me wrong. Hot Tomorrow's is no Eraserhead. Like, I love Eraserhead. Hot Tomorrow's up there. It's one of my favorite movies, I think, ever now. But there's such a commonality between these filmmakers at their start, and they diverge so heavily. It's so interesting to me. I also think Hot Tomorrow's is much more digestible than Eraserhead is. Uh, it's... Mm, I would say it's more grounded, if anything. Well, okay, six to one, half dozen the other. <laughs> um, but I think that's. A th- but I think that kind of probably works against Hot Tomorrow's favor now. Is Eraserhead mm. is so bizarre and abnormal; it gets elevated now because we celebrate things that are so out. Like think about yeah. it, in a society where nothing normal is allowed to kind of just sit there anymore. Anything that pushes the envelope gets Hot Tomorrow's could never become. A midnight movie where Eraserhead lived as a midnight movie back in the day. Well, no, that's the problem. Hot Tomorrow's is a little too balanced to be. Yeah, yeah, a, that, that's a what I'm saying. Yeah. But I think, but I think it could though. I think by, I don't know, Hot Tomorrow's I think could be a midnight movie. It problem is that it's not as shocking as like an El Topo or or anything else of that sort of ilk. Yeah, that that's what I, that's kind of what I'm thinking as you know when we um. When we watched what uh, the um, the Mark uh, the Mark Patton documentary Scream Queen, and they talked a lot about Midnight Movie, or I might be confusing my documentaries we've watched that we haven't discussed. We watched something about Midnight Movies, and it was like you know you could have a Racerhead and a John Waters movie. I don't know if you could have a John Waters movie and Hot Tomorrows. I think you could. I think you could start off with Hot Tomorrows and you could end with the John Waters movie. I think this movie. Ooh, interesting. It's it's it's. This is this is like oh god. Le- I don't want to say this. This is not a fair comparison, but it's lesser David Lynch. Like this is more of like what Dave. Okay, what Blue Velvet is to Eraserhead, Hot Tomorrows is to Eraserhead. Mmm, interesting. interesting. Not that it's lesser, but it's a very it's it's peculiar. But it's not bizarre. Yes, that that's a good way to put it. It is not bizarre. It's it's very very unique and interesting. Peculiar is a good way to put it. But there's nothing. There is no lady in the radiator scene. There is no you know giant baby think, head at the but, end. No, you don't have that stuff. That's just be like beyond anything. There's no man in the planet. But, no, but I do think your I think your cabaret dancers. 
and and our little person. They at are the, bar. the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo, Zach. How many times do I have fine. to tell you this? I'm, I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna okay. You keep using that. And the audience is gonna be okay, Rob. If people haven't already checked out. They check Everybody out knows that. who Oingo Bo- Oingo. Bo- do, do you know the person who's singing Saint James Infirmary in this movie? No, Rob. Danny Elfman. Is that really Danny Elfman? Yes, he's the founder of the Mystic Knight. Well, Randy Elfman is his brother. Is the founder of Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo. But the lead singer is Danny Elfman. That's Danny Elfman oh. in this movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Da- God damn it, Zach. I swear I said this to you like a month ago, and you were just like, okay, Rob, we're gonna, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's do it. Other movie. Here we go. No, actually, <laughs> oh, I, I should, I should quote you accurately. Point, yeah. I'm not pissed off. I just wish you weren't so fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, that's Danny Elfman. And I mean, oh. we can't, we can't even get into Danny Elfman because after Zach does his three quarters of the year, we're gonna get into Henry Selleck. And we'll talk about the whole Danny Elfman, ver- Elfman versus Chris Sarandon versus Tim Burton, uh, Tim Burton in The Nightmare Before Christmas. So we can't even get into Danny Elfman now. But yes, Danny Elfman and his sister-in-law are the two singers in the Paradise Club. Marie Elfman is her name. <laughs> James and Farm See my baby that she stretched at a long white table. So sweet, so cold, so fair. Okay, that kind of demystifies it a little, so I wish you would have kept that to yourself. But it's but I think those scenes are just as abnormal as like Silencio and Mulholland Drive. Oh, ooh, ooh, mmm. Uh, no Ibanda. Um, that's a tough comparison because the entirety of the scene in Mulholland Drive is that it's the illusion. Well, this, yeah, this is not an illusion. This is, I know, I know. It's not Mulholland Drive. I know, I think that's tough. That's a tough. That. I didn't think about that. That's a tough comparison, Zach. But I do think that there is that level of there's there's this very oh god. What's the word I'm looking for? Not supernatural. It's not the right word I'm looking for. But something very, very un I don't want to say uneasy, but very Maybe surreal? Surreal. Yes, thank you. Um, there's a very surreal nature to very specific parts of this film. Like it almost like there's almost something like it feels like oh god, I can't believe I'm making this comparison. <laughs> but kind of like what Spring Breakers feels for reality is what this f- film feels like. It feels very like the the least form of surreal possible, but it, it feels outside the bounds of reality in a way. Mm. But very, but but where Eraserhead is to the um, upteenth extreme of that, where again the the tagline of Eraserhead being a dream of dark and disturbing things. Yep. This feels like the most grounded version of that. This feels like somebody who didn't take. Like if Eraserhead's the version of someone having a dark and disturbing dream that took acid beforehand, this is someone who decided to take a little bit of Nyquil beforehand. Oh well. That I actually really like that in in sense of surrealism. There are different layers to it, and I think that's a really interesting comparison. That you know, Eraserhead and Mulholland Drive almost live at the 
the top tier of surreal, you know, surreal almost bleeding into absurdity. This is very much more grounded in surrealism, and it, and we do have those layers. I mean, I, I'm thinking of like, uh, uh, you, you think of surrealist paintings, you think of Salvador Dali, but at the same time, you think of surrealism painting more grounded you think of magritte the have you ever seen the painting with the guy in the in the suit with the apple in front of his face like that's a surrealist painting um by Rene magritte and that's a very different style from you know melting clocks of salvador dali and that might be a great comparison where uh, martin brest was very grounded surrealism where david lynch was over the top surrealism is that kind of what you're getting at yeah, like I said, I do think there's something very unusual about what's going on here. It feels very okay. hazy, very fever dream-esque. Like, we're like, clearly reality is, is more in the picture than anything else. But at the same time, it feels just things are just slightly out of focus. That actually, now that you say that, that brings up a really good idea of something I wanted to talk about. Um, uh, there's, there's three little, little tiny scenes in this movie. Uh, near the beginning, when Michael and Lewis are at the grocery store, we get this like long extent, maybe not long, but extended shot of a woman in the grocery store smoking a cigarette, and Michael's just staring at her. And at that point in the movie, you're just like, "Oh, this is reminding of his of his aunt, you know, the one he's writing about." You think that that's where it's going. Um, when they get to the mortuary and they get the tour of the mortuary, Michael sees his first dead body, and there's a woman in a casket. And then when he goes to the hospital after Lewis gets in the car accident. When he's waiting for the doctor, he sees a woman being carted, you know, over or around in the hospital. All three of those are the same woman. Yeah. And that is very surreal that he sees the woman alive, sees her dead, and then sees her in the throes of death. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're, yeah, that makes a good point that, you know, surrealism comes in different uh, granularities, maybe is the right word, different levels. And these, this movie does it in a way that's very different from a David Lynch. I also... Because I, I always have to say, I hate when people say that surrealism means not real. I hate that. Surrealism actually comes from the French phrase surreal, which means on top of reality. So it's not that it's fake. It's that it's something surpassing reality. Just got to get that out there, Zach. This might be the most pretentious episode of Cinematis ever for a movie nobody's ever seen. <laughs> uh, Maximo, oh, God, we hope you like it. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Is private? I guess private parts is available. So we can't. We had, so this is even more obscure than private parts. Oh, absolutely. Private parts, at least. Yeah. I mean, well, you if you search for private parts correctly and you don't get the Howard Stern movie, you can find it. Yeah, <laughs> you can't find this on any uh, of Rob websites. Nope. I had. I paid sixteen dollars for this. Oh man, Rob, for a dollar, let's could have gotten a DVD. I I wanted it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, no, it's it's kind of like it, it's 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 great. I I absolutely love it. I think in terms of the uh the surrealism that you mentioned, you know, we do get those uh maybe lynchian aspects. Um we have to talk about Hervé Villahays. De Plain, De Plain. He's tattoo. I got a tattoo, a tattoo, as Adam Sandler says. <laughs> um he like I mean, do people know Hervé Villahays? I mean, he's what tattoo from Fantasy Island. He's what? Who, who does he play in The Man with the Golden Gun? He's Scaramanga's sidekick, I, I right? Know. The James Bond I movie? Guess. Yeah, he's definitely in that. I don't remember who he plays, though. Um, I don't know what else anybody would know him from. Um, he has a very 
very sad life, unfortunately. I think the story from The Man with the Golden Gun is that they would have to, like, work around his schedule because he would stay up all night and, like, hire prostitutes and bring prostitutes to set and stuff like that. Um, very unfortunately, he ended up killing himself, I think, uh, maybe a few years after this movie, maybe seven, six, seven years after this movie. Um, is is he, he has to be better known than Nelson De La Rosa, right? <laughs> Because yeah. Nelson De La Rosa yeah. is just the Marlon Brando, Island Dr. Moreau dude. Like, at least uh, well, Hervé Villahayes had, like, roles in, in TV shows yeah. and movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, many, many. He's not, yeah. Nelson De La Rosa is not known. Yeah. Uh, but I I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I love him in this movie. I love him just showing up out of nowhere at the bar with Tony, and he's like, Ha! Huh, you believe in the truth? The truth does not exist, you know? And he has all these great expository lines about how he's just like pissed off at the world and then he's slumped over in a chair for the second half of the movie <laughs> but that's the sort of stuff that feels very Mulholland Drive-esque to me okay okay I mean like that's another that's like that's another Lynchian aspect of this like the obsession with people who are unique looking yeah, and then yeah. also kind of the absurdism of using these people in ways just having them sit there like, it kind of reminds me of, like, what was it, the incompetent hitman in Mulholland Drive that just like, constantly keeps doing all these things, trying to cover his mistakes. Oh, yes, Jacob like, from Lost, yes. Yes, there's this <laughs> goofiness in all this as well. Like, that's the thing, like, it, everyone takes Lynch for being this, like, overly serious filmmaker, but he also understands levity. And there's a difference between levity and comedy. Absolutely. And I, mean, I think that's levity in this. I think levity is there. People just don't know how to perceive it correctly. And I think that's more on the audience than on the film. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when you bring up Mulholland Drive with the levity, I think of the fantastic scene with um, uh, the, the, the boardroom or the meeting. You know, the this is the girl where he spits out the coffee and that type of stuff. Like that is that is very much David Lynch levity, not really humor. David Lynch humor, I think more is that Mulholland Drive, the incompetent hitman who shoots the dude, accidentally shoots through the wall, hits the woman in the next room, kills her, kills the janitor, shoots the vacuum cleaner, fire alarms go off, sprinklers go off. Like, th- yeah, you're right. I think I get what you're saying. Yeah. It's and such I a fine idea- line, <clears throat> though. That's a, This is something that I, I haven't really... That I think, actually, Zach, I'm going to say it before I let you continue. This is why I could only talk about this movie with you. <laughs> Folks, remember, I can turn it off and on. Like, like I, to be fair, like, I probably only watched, like, two-thirds of this movie. Yeah, I can give Rob an infinitely better conversation than the next dozen people that watched it Oh, my it God. We didn't through. even talk about how when I, I sent this to you on Dropbox, you sent me a, a gif of a man holding a gun to his head. <laughs> 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 like, th- this is the glory of, of our of our pairing of, of cinemodities that Zach's like, oh, I'm going to watch it, but I'm not going to like it. And then be like, okay, no, oh, there's that's... something here. <laughs> No, because that's the thing about Rob. It's like for every like like four bad movies or something that's just like incomprehensible. Not bad. Bad's not the right word. Incomprehensible. I was about to say that Rob breaks. knows I won't like. <laughs> yes. There, there's always that one. It's, it's about like I guess twenty percent success ratio with Rob. Like that's kind of where we are right now. Um, for every four things that I don't particularly care for, there's one that I'm like, ooh. This is nice. I think I'm better than that. I think I'm I'm at least twenty two percent success ratio. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but but no, like going back to Albrecht, I think that's the thing that's the key to this. There is there are those moments of levity 
where you have him just kind of passed out for the latter half of the film. But that is very few and far in between. You need a very specific audience member to get that for what it is. Sure. Because most people just will just be like, will just either go right past it or they'll misinterpret it. Most of the levity in this movie that I, I feel that Martin Brest tries to get it out of Lewis, the friend. But that dies away pretty quickly when they get to, pun intended, I guess, the mortuary. It dies away when he is just so distasted by Michael's interest in death. Yeah. But even that, like, like their relationship in this feels very, like I said, it feels like Griffin Dunn and our main character in American Werewolf in London. They have that sort of camaraderie together. And, like, again, I just – it makes you wonder, like you had all these filmmakers floating around this time in the late seventies that all kind of watched each other's work. Like think about it. It wasn't like today where you have literally hundreds of movies being released every single like month. Yeah. So like if you had something that just slightly stood out, people would go and find it. There's a reason why like Stanley Kubrick found a racer head. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder how much of this was seen by other people during that time period. And obviously John Landis was around the late seventies, the, the manslaughterer. And it would have been pulled like something like that would have been pulled. He would have pulled from first something like uh, werewolf in London. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, you're absolutely right. I think, um, that was one thing I noticed, uh, speaking about the chemistry between our two main characters. It does have that same vibe as, you know, some of the, the good chemistry we've seen in some of these older movies we've discussed. But it is also kind of, I think, like, I, I, I don't know if I really want to say ahead of its time, but it's something that is almost timeless, I should say. Because we get those scenes where, you know, uh, one of them, Michael or Lewis, will say something that's, you know, negative towards the other, and the other one will go, fuck you, I hate you, but then they're still good friends. Like, that's what people do, you know, and I know I have friends, like, I think the best example is Justin, where I'm like, Justin, you're a fucking idiot, you're never allowed to watch a movie again, but then 20 seconds later, we'll just be, like, shooting the shit, and it's, it's, it's almost like the perfect chemistry that friends need in a movie, and you never get the sense that they hate each other, they dislike each other, and that's what you need, because, spoiler alert, once again, for a movie that nobody can see, Lewis dies. (laughs) (laughs) Just like Griffin Dunn. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. That's right. I I mean, it's it's uh it's something else that the way that this movie can, you know, in 70 minutes and I mean even really, you know, uh 55 minutes is really when the bulk of the movie happens before Lewis dies or before, you know, Christmas Eve ends. It, they set up everything perfectly. We understand everything as we need to. It's it's great. I love it. I I mean, yeah. I uh the the one thing that I guess we should get to because I talked about before, I have a lot of thoughts on, like, what the characters represent in terms of, you know, um, interacting with Michael and his uncertainty with death. The one part of the movie I really don't understand is the guy in the mortuary that is just, like, sitting there in the black suit. Like, when they go to the mortuary, you have the night embalmer, and he's like, yeah, I'm the night embalmer, I'm an apprentice, like, I'm working on this stuff. And there's this other man there who speaks very highly of the establishment. Like, he knows a lot about this mortuary and the chain of mortuaries. And he's saying, like, he he knows, like, California law about who can be in mortuaries and whatnot, and he knows about these specific mortuaries. And then the characters ask him, well, what do you do here? And he's like, I don't work here. I just visit. And I'm like, what the fuck does this mean? Like, how do you know so much about these mortuaries if you don't work here? That's the one part of this movie I really don't understand. 
But that also feels very Lynchian in that sense that like you have these just kind of characters kind of lingering in the background and you really don't know what their intent is. Well, well, sure. I, I get you there, but they make a point of him giving so much information and then saying, I don't know. I don't work here. Like, it's so contrarian. I feel. Whereas in Lynchian movies, I don't think you're getting that that contrary sense. At least all of our, you know, people have places. This guy doesn't seem to have a place. He's just there. But I think that's what the difference is. Is that like if you look at I'm trying I'm trying to give an example of this from a Lynch movie, a character that's just kind of there that adds to just kind of again the fever dream aspect of everything. I think this is another layer of that. It's kind of like, oh, God, I'm trying to give an example of this. Oh, God. Oh, God. I, like the He's the, definitely okay. not the cowboy hat man. Not. No, like, not. cowboy hat man plays a very important role in Mulholland Drive. He is not that. I mean, but, maybe he's uh, the bartender, Renault, from the Bang Bang Bar in Twin Peaks? Maybe? No, okay. No, Twin Peaks doesn't count because Twin Peaks had too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, God, I'm trying to think of like should we sh- we just need to do a whole episode of us arguing about Twin Peaks. <laughs> we'll talk about the return, and that's all that matters. No, um, the whole series matters, especially when Firewalk uh, with me happens. When especially that, but when Horn thinks he's a fucking Civil War general in the second season, that is the one of the greatest things about that show. I thought the greatest thing about that show was what's her name telling Billy Zane that she's a virgin. <laughs> that is a really good. Sherilyn Finn. <laughs> yes. Take me. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, the point being though is that like it's like you have these this weird sort of like almost oh god, what would you call it? Um this characters there are just kind of there to just kind of add to the uneasiness. Like, why is this person there? What are they doing? Like, what, like, like it, it adds uneasiness to it. Like, I know, but, but room, in David Lynch's uneasiness, his characters they have something to do. This character is just so. I think I think contr- this character is doing something. I think this character is there to like just be like, why is this person there? It adds an uneasiness to it. Like it's some it's something that shouldn't be there, and it's like wh- why is this person there? It adds to the surreal nature. Like there's an entity there that knows so much about this world, yet does not have a place that properly belongs there, and it just it's there to kind of just. To, it's there to subliminally, subliminally frustrate the mind, and I think it serves that purpose. What about what about James from Twin Peaks, the biker? Because James, I don't know it, any of this. I don't know any of these. No, okay. From think Twin about Peaks. think about the return. Rob, I have not watched Twin. God Peaks damn it! Think about the return. James is the one that's friends with Freddie with the green glove, who has no idea what's going on, but helps Freddie get to the sheriff's office at the end. Yeah, something. Well, I, but I think that's a completely different thing, though, because I think. I think this film is much more surreal than what we're giving it credit for. Okay. That's, that's like, I'm, yeah. I, again, I'm treating this film very much like, again, if somebody were to told me, oh, we found a lost David Lynch film, I'd be like, okay, I get it. Like, it feels <laughs> maybe a little too streamlined for him, but like, it has those, vi- it has that very sort of surreal vibe to it. And I think that's where your character that's at the funeral home, that's your, you have this really young, kind of like green behind the ears night mortician yeah and you combine that with this older gentleman that's sitting there who knows infinitely more about this world yet he doesn't have a purpose there i think it's there's like it's like the shining almost it's these subliminal contradictions that are there to frustrate the audience okay okay without them even realizing that's a good point i guess i'm getting hung up on the the tv playing without the plug 
That's what this is. Sure. This is the character a, yeah. equivalent of the TV in The Shining playing without it being plugged in. That, that's I like that. I guess I'm getting hung up on the fact that I really want this movie to fall into the mold of every character takes a different stance on death, and I don't know where this character fits into. But that that's the... I mean, now that I think about it, and as you say it, that's the glory of David Lynch, that you can't find one mold that describes the movie. Everything has its weird place that... I, one of my favorite analogies, it's like trying to fit a carpet into a room that's too small for the carpet. Every time you fit a corner, another corner pops up. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, especially if that was your intent. Yeah, no, okay. Okay, you're right. I, I just, I, I was so, every time I watch this movie, I'm so weirded out. It is the craziest scene. I'll have to put the clip in because it's so insane where this dude says so much about the mortuary and then they go, what do you do here? Oh, I don't know, I just visit. <laughs> it's just so weird. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's, that's the point. That was really an amazing commercial I heard on the radio today. Yeah, it is. Lawn happens to be a leader in the industry and innovations. They spend more money on community relations and advertising than the next three largest mortuaries. I didn't know that. Combined. Do you have to make that noise with that bubble gum? Hmm? No, thank you. Uh, what do you do here? Well, right now I'm the night bomber, but after six months I'll be part of the day crew. Terrific. Well, what do you do, these? Uh, well, mostly cosmetic work. I have to finish my apprenticeship before I can bomb by myself. How about you? Me? Oh, I don't work here. Um, speaking of the mortuary, uh, I don't know if you if you checked out all the credits. Um, uh, the when before they go to the mortuary, they hear that radio commercial about how it's like, "Hey, come to the mortuary. We're going to be offering coffee yeah. because you should sober up before you drive." That voice is Orson Welles. Yep, yep, I saw that in the credits. Yep. Crazy! Fucking crazy! <laughs> but that's the thing, though, is that clearly Martin Brest knew someone who knew Orson Welles, or if he knew him personally, and he was able to get that. Like, yeah, yeah that's that's <laughs> neat. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even realize, the first time I watched this, I didn't realize it, because I wasn't really paying attention to, you know, who was talking. But once you know it's Orson Welles, you're like, yep, that's... Uh, that's him. Absolutely. <laughs> Paul Mas- the, the spokesman for Paul Masson Wine. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> the French wine by Paul Masson. Rob, oh. can you please insert that into the episode, please? 102, take two. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson. Inspired by that same French excellence, it's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So, Paul Masson. You want the Paul Masson wine clip in, in the episode? Yes. Oh, oh action <laughs> please. Oh, I guess. No, he goes, oh, <laughs> I mean, we've already had Deplane Deplane in here, so why not get that in here, too? Okay. Okay. (laughs) He doesn't do anything? No, it wasn't. Oh, the French. Who's the best? I I mean, I know know Zach hasn't seen it, but I really liked, I think it's Tom Burke who plays Orson Welles in Mank, the Fincher movie that Zach and I talked about off mic. He's really good as Orson Welles. Better than fucking Vincent D'Onofrio and Ed Wood. Like I didn't, li- I did not like Orson Welles. Was that and Ed Vincent Wood. D'Onofrio? 
Well, it's Vincent D'Onofrio, but they overdub him with someone else. That's, uh, oh my god, Pinky. Or no, The Brain. Oh, Maurice LaMarche, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's Vincent D'Onofrio. It's Vincent D'Onofrio playing him physically, but he's overdubbed by Maurice LaMarche. All right, Rob. Does it matter who plays Orson Welles as long as Maurice LaMarche voices him? Does (laughs) it really matter? That might be the right answer. The best Orson Welles is Maurice LaMarche. Exactly. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, Orson Welles stopped being a person. He eventually just ended up being a voice. I think when this episode releases, the uh, if you remember, Zach, we have a deadite Orson Welles drinking wine in the yes. restaurant. He's going to break yes. out of his glass cage and kill people when we say this. <laughs> I like to imagine bringing this back to Dune again. He's like, what, Baron Harkonnen? He just starts floating around the restaurant. Yes. yes. And Sting's just standing in the background looking bewildered. Like, what the fuck movie am I in? (laughs) That's a great scene. That's a great scene to laugh at. (laughs) We need that action figure. We need that. Deadeye Orson Welles as Baron Harkonnen floating around the Cinematis restaurant. All right. Okay. Something I have to tell. This is a Cinematis update. Um, I Uh didn't tell Rob this off mic because I completely just like I forgot about it. But it's, As I we do, we talked. usually we use. Yes. I usually have to edit out six hours of discussion yeah, from yeah, every episode because yeah, Zach remembers yeah, things. Yeah, this, needs, this needs to be in here because it's an update. Have we? Oh, ever, we're keeping we it in. Oh, okay. Cinema- <laughs> okay, we've talked about the Cinemati Satellite Restaurant, right? Like the one in the Galleria, like oh, in the former candy shop. The candy, yeah, about that, right? yeah. Where, uh, where, what? I think we said something like we have Jeremy take people's orders, and then when they don't get their yes. food, he goes to them and goes, "This isn't a fucking restaurant. What the hell's wrong with you?" <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, okay, because we talked about that during the Avengers Endgame experiment when it came to the Rice Krispies treat that yes. was like unopened, it was yes. like radioactive, it was put together, put back together. Hawaiian with, uh, rolls with tape. almond butter, yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. But no, like, like what happened to that location was last, like, okay, for those of you who don't know, I don't think we ever talked about this on mic, was like when the candy shop closed down like a year and a half ago, it became like during the holiday season, like an ornament shop because of Christmas. And we, Rob and I were kind of fascinated by this because they had, like, an animatronic Santa in there. And we're like, oh, boy, like, it's happening. And then when that closed down, like, it sat empty for a while. And I always joke to Rob that if we gave them, like, 50 bucks, we could easily, like, rent that space. Like, they, they would not question us. Yeah, we wanted and to – I this, think we wanted to do, like, a quick, like, uh, sketch comedy bit with that. Like, we rent it for a day and just film something in there and be goofy. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and then it became a like perfume outlet for like getting like discount perfumes and stuff. And I told Rob like once again it became like weirdly like it, it involved the cinematis because they had like cardboard cutouts of celebrities that were like they don't look oh, yeah. anything like they do anymore. Like it has like Justin Bieber circa 2010, Britney yeah, Spears circa yeah. like 2001. Um, what happened though? Update was they painted the store so it no longer has the candy like candy shop color. So like okay. it's just black now. But they still but now remember before I told you they had Justin Bieber and Jennifer Lopez. Now they have a Britney Spears cutout wearing a Santa cap. <laughs> Wait, is it is the Santa cap part of the cutout or is a is a literal no. hat on the cutout? It's a literal hat on the cutout. <laughs> It's great. Like, I look at it, and I'm like, God damn it. I'm like, we might not rent this space, but we kind of spiritually do at the same time. This – every time you tell me about the fucking Galleria, I just want to remake what, – what, what's the – which is the, the 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 George Romero zombie movie that takes place in the mall? I just want to recreate it in the Galleria. <laughs> oh, that would be great. It would be great. The place is a mess. Have, I just, like, just want to shove pies in people's faces and make fun of zombies. <laughs> 
in the gallery. Uh, <laughs> you know what was weird? At the migraine inducer, there actually was people like doing that the other day. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with people? If you want migraine, just sit there, just like, I don't know, like go look at like an image that just has like the color tinted the wrong way for like 30 seconds. You'll get migraine. It's much cheaper. <laughs> we should also mention that 80% of this mall is eyebrow threading stores. <laughs> Oh yeah, and this, oh yes, that is true. You know what's weird though? Like a bunch of the stores are like closed now. Like Ruby Tuesdays has been closed since like March. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, I what's, what's left in there? Or they got COVID? Didn't Sears like or JC Penney go out of business? What is left? Target. JC Penney's went. At, Target and Macy's are the only anchors left. God. I guess if you don't count Target and Dicks. God, we lived through the fall. I don't know if you did. If you, I don't know when you exactly when you came up from Florida, but I lived in New York in that area through the fall of the South Hills Mall. Now you're living through the fall of the Galleria. Okay, not to What's bring this too Walmart? much into discussion. <laughs> yeah, no, down no. on, or, or like, or like a, a way, way down on Route 9, you get to Walmart. <laughs> right. I, this is something I think is funny, is that like, not to bring this too much into a uh, history lesson on the retail locations of upstate New York. I think that but... the audience is dying for something that's different from a movie they can't watch. Can't watch. <laughs> Unless I go to DVDLady.com. Unless not True TV movies on there. <laughs> yes. Um, but no, I, I would, because again, like, Ross PayPal, work, interact, $16. <laughs> <laughs> Donate $15 to the Cinemodies Patreon so we can buy a copy from DVD Lady and see if the quality is incrementally better. Anyway, though, but yeah, I was describing to somebody at work. I'm like, you do know what the South Hills Mall is, South Hills Mall was, right? And they're like, yeah, it's that place like right next to us. And I'm like, no, like it was a legit mall at one point. Yep. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, it was a legit mall. Like they're like, what stores were there? And I'm like, a bunch of stuff. Like there was, there was a like Burger King. There was a Burger King in the mall. Media Play was in there. Media Play was in. People don't realize how great Media Play was. Like I would die for Media God, Play. God, right I now. still, literally to this day, I have a Jack Skellington hoodie that I got from Media Play when I was young at the South Hills Mall. I still have it. I don't wear it because I'm not edgy anymore. Well, I guess I guess I don't know. I don't know what edgy constitutes today. He's, but I still have it. Edgy. He's edgy in that he talks about a movie nobody can watch on a third-rate movie podcast. Media Play That's is where I bought Final Fantasy X for the PS2 back in 2000. Like, that's how fucking crazy... I played Yu-Gi-Oh! at the South Hills Mall. Got Game was that, there. That that does not shock me at all. <laughs> Everybody you know, listening to this read... is like, thank God they're talking about something other than Martin Vest. <laughs> well, my favorite thing about the ShopRite that's there is that in the back, because the ShopRite used to be a Sears, like when the mall first opened, there is still a merchandise pickup sign oh God. that has like... 70s era Sears font. What is? Well, I mean, I, is Burlington Coat Factory still in that mall? Nope, nope. It moved God. to where Toys R Us used to be. Da- oh wow! And Kmart went out of business. Wow. Yeah, I remember the Kmart going out of business. Jeez, the, dude. We the saw MacGruber there, the didn't we? One, one, one of the many times we, we saw MacGruber was yes. there. <laughs> yes, and we and um in the movie theater shut down because they didn't have heat anymore. <laughs> Some bridesmaids there with my mom, and one of my shoes stuck to the floor so bad it came off my foot. <laughs> Sounds all right, dude. The South Hills Mall, jeez. That kids' museum used to be in there before it went to Poughkeepsie, right? I, I I don't even know what you're talking about. The children's museum. 
Like I fe- don't know what that is. That was probably I, before you, you came it. up from uh, for like elementary school. We'd go on field trips to the children's museum, that type of thing. Oh, okay, yeah. That yeah, that was probably before. Yeah. That was before your time, Zach. <laughs> exactly. God, the South Hills right, Mall. Check, check your phone, Rob. Check your phone. How do we? How do we buy? I think we said it in uh in our December series. Um. How do we? We said how do we buy the Disney back in December? Now, yes. how do we buy the South Hills Mall <laughs> and make that it's the Cinemodities restaurant? Actually, the K, between the Kmart, the Burlington Coat Factory, and the movie theater, I think that is that is enough of an infinite void. This us. is the most dystopian picture you've ever fucking sent me, Zach. <laughs> this literally it looks is. like it could be from the next Mad Max movie. <laughs> I want on record that literally I can see that from where that that pick that sign is. Like I sent Rob the picture of the merchandise pickup sign. If Rob's good, he'll post it in the Cinemati subreddit. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, I will. I will have to include this, this. The best part is this: where I work, I can actually see this sign. That's the best part. Like I can like this is the weird thing. Like I told Rob that like it kills me that like after all the years of having to beg, borrow, and steal to get rides to the movie theaters, I love now that I I literally work within walking distance of two abandoned movie theaters. You know what they say. You know what you say, Zach. There's only two tragedies in life. <laughs> <laughs> I sent. Uh, I responded to your. I, I saw. I, I yes. I, I know it is. Okay. Did we mention on last? Two months ago, episode <laughs> of 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 of, of Cinemodities or Teen Beach movie that your favorite GIF of all time is Grace Phipps using like hip bumping. There the, is the so there is so much of me talking about how much I love Grace Phipps in the Teen Beach movies episode that I had to edit some of it out because it got creepy at a certain point. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay, okay. I, I guess uh, that brings us back to Cold Yesterdays. Cold Yesterdays. I Before I jump into it, because I, I know I have more than you, as you've uh, expressed, were there any scenes or moments or maybe— Cabaret, Dan, the only scenes that I—like I said, the whole movie is visual is, is interesting. Yeah. But the yeah. scenes that stood out, obviously, again, like I keep saying, is the ending. The ending is great. It's worth it. Just that alone is worth the price of admission. Oh yeah. And the cabaret scenes, I think those are kind of your most kind of just this weird sort of like almost. And again, I don't know if it's the quality we're watching this in or what, but it, I almost get like this German expressionistic vibe from that, like mm. the makeup, the lighting. I, I like that. I, I dig that sort of thing. Ever since I gave Rob a copy of the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, and he's like, "Zach, I'm not watching this." And that was like a decade ago. I did watch I it though. Like, eventually, you did. Yeah. You oh, did? Okay, with okay, my eventually. dad. So. Okay, so that, that's, so a, like, that's yeah. a different experience from watching it on my own. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I, I, that should be a series on cinematics. Like, we should pick like our top four movies and watch them with your father. Like we should do like Book of Henry, Hot Tomorrow. My dad and I watched uh, After Last Season together. Well, yeah, I was there for After Last Season. Yeah, no, I that was, was just me and him. That. No. I was, was that, that was after your birthday. You're like going away graduation birthday. I don't party. think that was no. That was not after last season. That was something. No. Yes, it was. No. It was after last season. He fell no. asleep during it. I, well, what movie well, was that? Then? My dad falls asleep. My dad fell asleep when we saw Iron Maiden at Madison Square Garden. So that doesn't add anything. <laughs> that that somehow feels impossible. But okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my dad is literally the only person to fall asleep to Bruce Green having the most energy in the fucking known universe. <laughs> 
Rob, what other movie did we watch that day other than after last season? I, I don't I don't remember because I Rob, don't think I, please, I don't think that Rob, was after last Rob, season. Rob, which which one of us does not have the problem with substance abuse? At least at at, at, at over okay, you're pulling that card right now? You're pulling that card right now? Yes, I am. Yes. It was after last season. It was after last season. I don't remember that at all. We watched Lemon Stealing Horrors together. We watched Pornography together. What? Lemon Stealing Horrors. Yeah, you're pulling out nonsense. I'm pulling out nonsense. What are we talking about? That's what I'm asking you. We're making shit up at this point. <laughs> Remember, folks, there's at least two episodes I can name right now where I couldn't have a conversation with Rob because of what he was doing while we were recording. I uh, let you. I'll let the audience decide. Who do you think is right? I would like to let the audience know that in four hours from now, Zach and I are going to be discussing the Mandalorian. <laughs> yes, yes. Which okay, excuse, excuse. Okay, tell the audience that by the time this episode debuts, we will discuss the Mandalorian like six weeks ago. Oh shit! I just went through a turnstile. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> no no okay okay all all of our disagreements aside we're we're edgelords we're spicy edgelords meme lords zach whatever the fuck the colloquialism i, I is am today. i have i have now inherited the jack skellington hoodie because i am the true edgelord now between <laughs> two of us so i look at i look at you know that meme from captain phillips of the guy being like i'm the captain I'm now the captain. imagine it's me but i'm wearing the jack skellington hoodie and i'm saying it to rob i'm the edge lord now i'm the rob now <laughs> <laughs> i'm the i'm the alcoholic now that sits there records podcast intoxicated oh that's good that's good no i i, I do want to talk about the paradise ballroom mystic knights of oingo boingo scene i know we mentioned already that it is danny elfman which is awesome because this is Danny Elfman before literally anything we know him from, and we have to wait before he sold his soul to the devil. Well, yeah, absolutely, because Danny Elfman eventually becomes Mister. I can make movie scores, and all of them sound exactly the same. I really don't like Danny Elfman when he gets to Nightmare Before Christmas. I think that's probably the start of it, and we'll talk about that because Danny, like I mentioned before, Danny Elfman versus Chris Sarandon versus Tim Burton is one of the most fantastic stories in film history i think and henry Selick's just like i want to make a stop motion movie everybody shut the fuck up <laughs> but we'll get to that that's later this year even though this movie is not in the greatest quality which we found and been able to watch it in i love the fact that one of the band members of the mystic knights of oingo boingo which i don't even know if the band is part of the mystic knights of oingo boingo he has a b-flat clarinet I love me a good B-flat clarinet, which is a lower lower register clarinet than a usual clarinet. And when they belt out St. James Infirmary, when Danny Elfman is the singer of St. James Infirmary, this might be the best performance of that song I've ever heard. Not just seen, ever heard. Are you familiar with St. James Infirmary and its history throughout since like the 20s and how it's been like covered by... Like, even fucking Hugh Laurie has a cover of this song. Zach? Rob, how do you even ask that question with a straight face? It's not pop music from the early 2000s. I'm sorry. Exactly. <laughs> so we, we know the, we, the – everybody, the audience knew the answer. That okay, so so, so the, the your response is that the Cheetah Girls no. should perform St. James Infirmary. Yeah. Like, I no, went no, down to St. James Infirmary. I met my lady there. 
<laughs> no, lemonade mouth should rock. Get it right. Ooh, lesbian Jesus. Okay, that'd be good. No, I, honestly, I'll put a clip in, but I mean, I've uh, St. James Infirmary is one of those songs that is like classic. If if you know, if you're not Zach and you follow history of music, you know that this is one of like the the biggest things that's been covered. It's um it's basically the the thing that's second to uh Hot Tamales, you know, Hot Tamales in the Red, Hot, yeah, she got them for sale. Like, it's one of those public domain songs that everybody covers. And this might be the best performance of that song I've ever heard. And I'll put the clip in, and it's awesome. James and Farm See my baby that she stretched at a low white table. So sweet, so cold, so fair. Because not only is it Danny Elfman actually singing and being a musician, but you actually have a band behind it. You know, it's 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 great. I love it. I love watching that scene. And I think I, I didn't take that cabaret stuff as surreal as you did, Zach. But I love it just as much, I think. It's it's a fantastic musical piece that backdrops, you know, our characters talking about how they're from the Bronx and, and dealing with, you know, being displaced in L.A. and things like that. And I, I wanted to pitch this as well. All of our characters, or our three big characters, you know, Michael, Lewis, and Tony, they're all New Yorkers that are in L.A., in Hollywood. This is what Martin Brest gets at in Gili as well. We have Gili taking place in California, but, you know, clearly Ben Affleck is a, a Brooklyn gangsta type of thing. I, I like that similarity. <laughs> well, that's what he wanted to be, but Ben Affleck I, sucks I know, as a person. So, <laughs> <gasps> What? I don't like we, – we've established we don't like Ben Affleck. We just like his birthday. <laughs> he's not a good actor. We've established this. He's he's a meathead in that movie. Yeah, yeah, in every movie. I mean, I don't know, Rob. You haven't gotten to Pearl Harbor yet. Oh God, I'm not looking forward to Pearl Harbor. But what did you? I, I can't what wait. Did, I, I don't know if you made that connection that we have this kind of displacement in both New Yorkers to L.A. or people to L.A. from you know well, Hot Tomorrows and Geely. Oh my God! First time that's ever been done in the history well, well, also, of ever comparing uh, speak, Hot speak Tomorrows of, to Geely. Speak of displacement i mean we i know zach hasn't seen a lot of these movies but i mean that uh, going going in style has a lot more to do with death than displacement it's about older men um but uh beverly hills cop it's uh it's a cop from new york eddie murphy that has to go to beverly hills um you know we even have uh scent of a woman where you know we have the guy from new york has to go across the world with the rich al pacino who says hua all the time meet joe black we have death displaced into a human body. Displacement is another thing that Martin Brest likes to hit on. Uh, well, yeah, like I said, I, I can't really argue with any of this. Um, again, that's the thing. You know infinitely more about him than I do. <laughs> Zach's um, like, can we talk about the mall again? <laughs> <laughs> can we talk about the philosophical existential dilemma of media not existing? <laughs> 
Uh, no, again, Rob, you, you know more than I do. So other than kind of just like reaffirming what you've already stated, I don't know how much more I can do without watching more. Maybe ask me this question at the end of the series. Sure, sure. Yeah. We we have to do going in style together. I don't think anyone else will appreciate going in style other than us. We have to do Midnight Run together because I think Midnight Run is actually a good movie. The one that you might be allowed to skip, Zach, that I could do with Ben is Beverly Hills Cop. I don't know if... <gasps> Unless you wanted, if you want to do Beverly Hills Cop, nope, that's fine. But it. that's I'll a terrible fucking it. movie. <laughs> like, if you need a week off, Zach, I'll recruit Ben for Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, the one thing, if you do skip Beverly Hills Cop, I'll tell you now. <laughs> bing, bing. I know I asked you this before, and I probably cut you off. Are there any other scenes or moments you want to talk about before I get into mine for Hot Tomorrow's? A Cold Yesterday's, sorry. Uh, Lukewarm no, Presence. not really, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm sure when I go through these, you're going to pick up on them. Uh, there's one I really wanted to talk about uh, when near the end of the movie, I think it's right before our Michael learns that Lewis has been in the car accident, we get him uh, writing more about his aunt. Uh, Aunt Ethel, Tante Ethel, and we get a great shot of a camera like going through stairs of an apartment building and then being dropped down from a windowsill when it reveals that Tante Ethel jumped out a window and killed herself. That's one of those moments that I watch this movie and I'm like, wow, Martin Brest, that's a great shot. Like, that's how you, that's understanding how to use a camera. And it bums me out that when we get to shit like Meet Joe Black, that he's basically like, I got a tripod, I got a point in space, and I'm just going to have Anthony Hopkins and Brad Pitt do all the work. Did that shot stand out to you, or do you remember the one I'm referencing? That's, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, because yes, a lot of the camera work in this was really unique. Oh, it yeah. was a, a fluid camera. It was the not panning. stagnant most the of the time. The panning is fantastic. Yeah. In the Paradise Club, everything – like I was enthralled by the fact that when they get to the Paradise Club and they meet Tony, there's so few – cuts it's all panning and i loved that yeah no no that was that's the thing it, it, it's a very fluid camera there's a lot of it, it's very dynamic that's one thing you gotta give the filmmaking in this and just how the camera is set up and how it moves through a lot of the sequences yes no i wholeheartedly agree with you on that it's so good and this is one of the things this is why watching this i realized i was like wow how do we go from this to Justin Bartha playing a mentally handicapped person. How do we go? How do we get there? <laughs> oh, it's beautiful, Rob. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. I don't get me wrong. Like I said earlier, everybody in the world should watch Giggly as an academic exercise. <laughs> yes, I wholeheartedly agree. It deserves a much better treatment. Oh, yeah. But no, that that whole – like the camera work was exemplified by that scene. And I think it's even – I guess we got to get to it. it it's – it works so well in that final dance number when, you know, the camera tracks Michael going up the stairs when he hears. Well, before we can talk about the final dance number, it is so satisfying. As I talked about earlier, Michael gets to the old folks home, the retirement home. He's really having to deal with Lewis's death. He's really having to deal with the manifestation of death in his interest with it. And he runs out of the retirement home, and while he's kind of, like, panting next to a tree, like, taking a break, this old woman comes up to him, and he's and she's like, I got a postcard from my son, but I can't read it. Will you read it to me? And 
it for this old woman, it's a postcard from her son, but for Michael, it's the postcard from Lewis that he was saying the whole movie, when I die, I'll send you a postcard. And mm-hmm. it's so satisfying. And as he's finishing the postcard, as he's realizing that, you know, not in reality, but in terms of his understanding of death, things have come full circle. As he's realizing this, you start to hear the music. And he goes up to the top floor of the retirement home, and the camera just tracks him the whole way through. And there are a few cuts, of course, when he goes through doorways and, and things like that. Is you know we, We've talked about the, the Elephant Man edits where David Lynch had to, you know, cut the cut the camera to, to move around people on the stairs and stuff like that but once you get the start of that tap dancing and the final musical number it's just beautiful and that's the one thing i found like i said all these reviews i read for the movie they had nothing to say about the movie i think i'm the first person to give any take on this movie in terms of the world which i'm very happy about but that Everybody can agree on that final musical number is phenomenal. That is such a good piece of editing, camera work, lighting, the moments in it when you have the giant hand carrying the woman, when you have Hector Villa Hayes in the, the coffin that people hold up, when you have Lewis and Michael, you know, in the Laurel and Hardy makeup, jumping across coffins, when you have this weird dancer with the fake head on the back of his head that reverses around to show the acceptance of... Oh my God, Zach, I love it! I love that ending!
it's neat. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue with you. It's so good. It's so goddamn great. And the song is awesome. It's it's 42nd Street. And I think that works well because, like we said, these are New Yorkers trapped in California. They say they grew up in the Bronx. Martin Bress grew up in the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx. You want to get to 42nd Street. 42nd Street is Times Square. It's where Times Square meets with Broadway. That's where the shit goes down. That's where you want to be. And that's that whole ending is that they've accepted death, or Michael has accepted death, and he has finally gotten to 42nd Street. And it's just so goddamn good. And my favorite part of that last musical number, death winks at the audience. Yes. Oh, God, it's so good. It's even saying our main character might have accepted death. Maybe we've taught you about how to accept death, that life and death are hand in hand. You know, to quote this movie, or to paraphrase this movie, but to quote Dream Theater, death is not the end, it's only a transition. I think that's what they're getting at here. That when death winks at you, it goes, hey, you know, this is one of the only things we have as finality in our universe. Does Martin Brest lose that concept years later? Yes, because he says the only thing that's certain are death and taxes. And that is not a good message. The acceptance of death is a good message. Death and taxes acceptance is not a good message. Oh, oh my god, Rob. This would make oh god, this and Meet Joe Black would be a great double feature. Like, I, I if you mean, don't end up putting a gun in your mouth by the end of Meet Joe Black, like, yes, it would yes. be Gili is the academic exercise. If you discount Gili, then you start with Hot Tomorrows, you end with Meet Joe Black. That is a great double feature about how a director can get so muddled down and lose what they're thinking about. Because this movie encapsulates it perfectly. Meet Joe Black is basically like, well, what if death was a goofy concept? <laughs> what if he fucked a woman and didn't like it? <laughs> what if he really liked peanut butter more than he liked Claire Falani? <laughs> Just the butter. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, my biggest, my biggest problem with doing the Martin Breast series is that I Jump have to today. watch Meet Joe Black in its entirety. I've never I've only really? seen the back half because we did our two halves thing. I cannot in good faith rank his movies when we get to the end of the series without watching it in its entirety. So I'm going to have to fucking sit through 3 hours of Meet Joe Black. It's worth it. It's worth it just to watch Brad Pitt get hit by a car. I saw that scene. I thought you were going to say it's worth it's it great. to figure out if Jeffrey Tambor is a pedophile or not. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what you were going to say. Because <laughs> the one thing that sticks out to me from our Knights of Vader conversation is you're like, there's kind of this weird thing with Jeffrey Tambor and he talks about liking little girls. And I'm like, oh, shit, Zach, in the second half, he says he has a secret. And that was like our big con- convalescence of, of information at the, end of the, at the end of the discussion that Jeffrey Tambor might be Maybe, uh, not attracted to Marsha Gay Harden in that movie, but like little girls. <laughs> Goddamn fucking Martin Brest, I love you because you're so fucking crazy. (laughs) All right, Rob, I've got nothing else to say about this movie until we can get some more information on it or maybe a better quality version. I would imagine you have more, but for the sake of the audience – is it is it pertinent to this conversation? Well, I think I, I think I actually hit on a lot of the uh, the big ideas that I wanted to talk about. Um, looking through my notes real quick to see if there's anything else. Um, I think the maybe the last thing that I really wanted to hit on was a nice small, very small touch that I really enjoyed. 
when uh, Michael gets the call that Lewis is, uh, there's been, a, well, he gets a call from Tony that's been an accident, and he goes to the hospital. When he shows up at the hospital, he talks to the receptionist or the administrator, whoever, and he says something like, I'm looking for my friend Lewis, like he was in an accident, and the nurse is like, uh, you know, did he get admitted here? And he goes, yes. And the nurse says, what's the name? And Michael responds with, my name or his? That's such a neat little humanistic reality touch. Yes. Like, I love that little bit where any other movie would just be like, well, fuck it. You know, Lewis, Lewis, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's who is in the hospital. But you really have the the maybe manic aspect of Michael, you know, her, hearing his friend got hurt. And he's just like, my name or his. Like, it's, it's I, I don't know. I love that. It's, it's such a small touch. It's so realistic. It's so human that I... I'm like, Martin Brest, where the hell did you fucking go wrong with Christopher Walken saying he needs to eat ice cream through his head? You know? Like, be human. I I love that little touch. My name or his? Because that's what I would fucking do. Like, if I got a call and it's like, you know, Zach fell down the stairs and I got to go see him in the hospital and they'd be like, what's the name? I'd be like, mine or his? I would do the same fucking thing. It's so real. I love it. Don't fall down the stairs, Zach. Don't do that. I promise. Okay, Rob, I promise that only if you promise me something else. I don't – okay. I mean I want to hear the promise first before I accept it. All right. Will you promise me we'll finally go to the Baywatch? Oh, now that I can do. We'll go to the Baywatch. Okay. We'll meet a nice nice skinny blonde lady with an Australian accent who can tell the weather to us. And then we'll run train on her together. How about that, Zach? Sweet. So sweet. I have to say, because that was, I think that was the last thing I wanted to mention, um, but this is, of course, since it's the kickoff of the Martin Brest series, when I was picking out what we were going to discuss for the Martin Brest series, there was a good part of me that was thinking about revisiting Giggly. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, because, not that, well, one, don't get me wrong, Zach, our Gigli episode, episode 99 of Cinemodities, everybody check it out, is fantastic, <laughs> but... That might be – that is one of the things where I think it's like we should do it every year. Like there's more stuff to say about it every fucking year. Gigli, every – how long is the Gigli episode? I have no goddamn idea without bringing out the spreadsheet. The correct answer is not long enough. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, but yeah, uh, so tune in next week when Zach and I run train on an Australian woman who – speaks about the weather no with that being said that is hot tomorrow's a movie most people will never see uh well most people i'd say the vast majority of mankind (laughs) will never know exists never mind watch welcome to cinemodities uh so that brings us to our questions right zach oh yeah so um i i think uh this is a foregone conclusion for cinemodities i'm gonna go absolutely for late night i'm gonna go without a goddamn doubt this is Ludovico technique status. Like, I'm going to fucking make people watch this. People are going to be like, oh, what do I want to watch? I'm going to go, I don't give a fuck what you want to watch. We're watching 70 minutes of a black and white movie that the audio clips for most of it, and you can hear the crackling. And they're going to be like, what's it about? Because, Rob, I have some faith in you since I'm over here as I'm tying them to the chair. And I got to go, death. It's about death. And that's when people go, maybe I should have called the cops before I went into this apartment. <laughs> <laughs> no, all right. in the all Gigli, honesty, I lo- episode, love this the movie. The Sheely episode is two hours and 50 minutes long. Like, that is not a short episode. No, I think I think the first hour and 10 minutes is me, us, mostly me, but us describing Martin Brest's history. 
Like I said at the start of this, I talk about his whole history in that, which is why we didn't do it in this episode or we're going to do in this series. Check it out. Episode 99. Everybody. Giggly. Indeed. Giggly. It's so good. Your tongue will break through your head to get to it. (laughs) (laughs) I like big butts and I cannot lie. (laughs) 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 So I'm going yes to both for Cinemites and Late Night. A hard yes. It's going to be rough. What do you think, Zach, for Cinemites and Late Night? Oh, Rob, Rob. It's a Cinemite alone because of the fact of just literally no information on it. I knew it. it. I knew it. Zach's like – It's a fact – Zach's like, this might top the list for cinemodities. <laughs> it is. For that reason alone, it gets hit, never mind the content of the film, which would definitely get in there on its own rights. Um, late night movie. I, I would love to see this in better quality. Um, I think the quality would make this even more more difficult for people to watch. Mm. But I would – that's the thing. I think if this movie was like at least in DVD level quality, I sure. think it would be much more digestible to people. That's, but I think that's in its a, current state, it'd be hard to get people on board with it. That's a really good point. Something, you know, when you bring up the quality in terms of late night, that's something we didn't mention in our main discussion. I definitely felt that in the quali- in the version that we have, which is the only version that exists, period, it seems, um, th- there's some, th- the saturation of some of the light, because it's black and white, but the saturation of some of the lights, of, of the bright bright lights in some of the scenes really doesn't do it justice like you know there's some the the tanta ethel scenes like basically you can't see the people's faces because there's so much light coming from behind them i think that happens when um lewis turns around in the dance number scene and he says college boy this is it like the light is just so ridiculous that it drowns out a lot of stuff the saturation i would love to see uh, once again i want this to be Jodorowsky's doing. I want to hang out with Martin Brest, and then at the end of the night, he goes, "Hey, you want to see a good print of this movie?" And um, I would have to, you know, put a pillow over my lap to cover my erection. It's <laughs> the way it goes. Gro- You're right. Gross. You're right, Zach. The, qu- Gro- the quality gross. is. Hey, you made that joke on the Tenet episode about me, but you still you made that joke before. I'm in, what, reg- in, what, re- in what regard, Elizabeth Debicki? Oh. oh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I wasn't wrong then. No, no, you're not. Tall lady missing a cigarette. <laughs> Give me that pillow, son. Um, or leave me alone. Either choice. But no, you're not wrong. I would love to see this in better quality. I would love to see this in any better quality. I know you were mentioning Zach the DVD quality. Just any improvement, I would eat it up. No, that's the thing. Though. I don't want to see a VHS, like, like an official VHS qual. Like I would, like beggars can't be choosers. Yeah, yeah, that's but what like, I'm saying. VHS, yeah. but remember though, a VHS copy is going to crop part of the frame, so you're missing like a third of the film. Yeah. And that's remember, Rob, you're only seeing like basically like two thirds of the image. You're actually missing the sides of the frame. God. Yeah, there's I, even more of the film uh, you haven't seen. That's why go, we got we got to start hanging out with Martin Brestsack. All right, we have to figure out where this where the print of this film is and like do a heist. <laughs> Could you imagine? If, like, a year, two years from now, it's just like, yeah, Rob and Zach became best friends with Martin Brest. <laughs> <laughs> like, they fu- hang out. Find first. Exactly, they have to find them. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Okay. So, I guess that uh, brings us to snacks? Indeed, sir. Okay. Indeed. Well, I got, I got some snacks, Zach. This is a, uh, 
As much as I love this movie, I think it benefited from how many times I watched it that I got to start to think about snacks. The There's a few that are low-hanging, and I guess I'll start with that. A dish that is plain rice served with a can of Ready Whip. <laughs> because in this movie... Served with the Ready Whip? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like it's like a plate just of plain rice, and then there's just a can of Ready Whip that you get served with it. You know, not on the rice, but like next to it, you know? Sure. Um, because in this movie, Lewis eats a lot of Ready Whip. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ain't old, old Ready Whip. It was there when he got moved into the apartment. Yes. And he, he seems not to care. Um, but I, I think that's great. I think, you know, it's just like, uh, talk about a struggle meal. You ever hear that term, Zach? A struggle meal? Like when you're when you're low on money, you, you know, it's like people who put like cheddar cheese on a saltine. That's a struggle meal, that type of thing. Oh, okay. No, I'm not aware of that. Oh, okay, okay. Str- yeah, struggle meal. I've heard before where it's like you know you're you're so you, you're so poor you don't have enough money. You just make struggle meals, and it's like I, I think the the best struggle meal I ever saw was like somebody had like a banana peel with ketchup. <laughs> That's not in this movie. The struggle meal for this movie is ready whip and plain rice. <laughs> Um, I I have to mention, because it's mentioned in this movie, something that I absolutely love, and I eat regularly. I order it regularly, because I can't buy it out here in landlocked Colorado. Clams! I love clams! I order clams, you know, in cans. I order clam sauce from uh, other places. I love clams, and I love that Lewis in this movie, he's something like, hey, we've been drinking, I'm hungry, let's go get some clams! And then he's like, we always come back after clams! When he's talking to Polly. Zach, your thoughts on clams? I've never had clams before, actually. Really? Uh Uh-uh. Okay. Uh, Hit up my mother and say, Mrs. (laughs) McAndrew, I want you to make me pasta with clam sauce. Pasta with clam sauce. That's the go-to dish with clams. I can do that myself. I don't need someone to do that for me. I know you don't need to, but you want to. It's like you can oh, fuck, you okay. can fucking you know jack yourself off, but wouldn't you want someone else to do it for you? Like, what are you saying right now, Zach? Hey, self love is the best love. I can suck my own dick, but I'd rather have someone else do it. <laughs> that got very unnecessarily sexual. Uh, but clams, I love me some clams. Uh, I actually made pasta with clam sauce last night because I wow. ordered clam sauce in honor of this clams. movie. In honor of this movie, yes, that's absolutely. why Rob also also Rob didn't tell anybody in the audiences, but because this takes place on Christmas Eve and recording this on the twentieth of December, Rob chose that specific reason, right, Rob? Okay, quick aside: is this a Christmas <laughs> movie because it has tangential? Okay, okay, absolutely. It's Next a question, movie. which is this is this is the stupidest thing I've heard recently. But it's been going around on the meme sites and the reddits and the stuff like that. People have been saying that Lord of the Rings is a Christmas movie because it has elves. Oh. Is this the dumbest thing you've ever heard, Zach? Probably not, but it's... It, <laughs> but it's up there. It might not be the dumbest. The dumbest thing I heard was the, the pitch meeting for Dr. Sleep. But this is close. Yes. <laughs> Oh my god! Have we ever talked about it on Mike? The whole fucking stupid debate of if is something a Christmas movie, like the Die Hard debate, is it a Christmas movie? We have, might have discussed it, maybe like 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 offhandedly, but I don't think never like head on. Okay, I mean, I my my take is I don't care. Yes, that what is, the that fuck is does it matter? Answer. Like, what does it matter if Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not? The movie still exists in static form as we know it. 
I don't get it. I, I literally don't understand this debate that people get up in arms about like, no, it's Christmas because it takes place on Christmas. And it's like, no, it's not Christmas because that Christmas has nothing to do with it. They could rob the building anytime. And it's like, what the fuck does it matter? <laughs> I think most things on the internet can be boiled down to why does it matter? Yeah, hey, ain't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we quickly agree on, though, uh, Lord of the Rings, terrible movies? Just once again? Yes. Thank you. Wholeheartedly. Okay. Uh, so Agreed. Moving on. The next snack that I had was um, a silver bullet, which I had never Ooh, heard of. Okay. Even though I'm from the Bronx and I've been to bars in the Bronx, I've never heard that trick that uh, Lewis uses uh, about, you know, mixing scotch and vodka 50-50. Can I say, though, that sounds terrible. I might – I think I almost vomited hearing somebody say they're mixing scotch with vodka. That sounds so gross. And as Zach knows, I don't like vodka. I think vodka tastes like cleaning product. Scotch is great, though. But mixing them? Oh. But, hey, we have inexperienced bartenders at the Cinemati's restaurant. If somebody orders a silver bullet, they're going to get 50-50 scotch and vodka. <laughs> yes. Have you tried Dan Aykroyd's vodka yet? We, we keep going through this. No. Well. Because you told me it tastes like cleaning products. It does. All vodka tastes like cleaning products. No, it doesn't. No, no, no. Decent vodkas only taste partially like oh, cleaning like vodka. Products. Zach, you better get on that fucking $10 like, gin train like I am, okay? <laughs> I love the fact the first time I ever tried vodka is recorded on the Titanic episode. Well, I love that's, that fact that's so Zach's, much. That's Zach's claim to fame. It's gonna He put that on his resume. The I'm first time sure. I tried hard alcohol was recording the <laughs> Titanic episode. <laughs> Boy, my proudest cinemati achievement. Oh, God, that episode's a doozy, too. <laughs> It's not as good as the signing episode. It's not Shift as good change. as the signing, but it's out there. <laughs> uh, I, I have to say, I love – this will probably get edited out because it's so goofy. Uh, I love the fact that in that episode, we're just like going along and we're having a good time. And then I go, is this the first time people have ever had sex in a car? And you go, no, no, I don't want to talk about that. That's stupid, Rob. Like I, I ground that discussion to a halt in that episode <laughs> no but i like okay i want it on the record this is weird that all this happened last night but the idea of car sex came up last night in a conversation i was having car sex is great and and what i we're not going to comment on that it's great but I, I mean the first thing that came to my mind was jimmy c made the classiest car sex scene someone anyone will ever make in cinema in cinematic history <laughs> i don't know i don't know what it's that true for. It is. It's you're not gonna, ever going to get a classier sex scene than the one uh, sex scene, classier car sex scene than the one in Titanic. I don't know. Don't they have sex in a car at the start of It Follows? Are they in a car? I don't remember. Maybe, but that's that 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 is heresy. No, that's to the compare. Titanic that's the classic. Well, okay, that's fair. That's the classiest part of that movie. I should say. There's no no. The classiest part it follows is the fact that like they think they can kill the monster by like having it go into a pool and throwing toasters into it. Oh my god. Just because we will never, I will, there are a few things, as our audience knows, if you're an astute listener, there are a few things I will literally veto from Zach, and everybody knows that I don't veto a lot of stuff, because I've sat through fucking Cheetah Girls, Lemonade Mouth, and Teen Beach movies last year. I will forever <laughs> veto the fucking I will veto It Follows. That is the stupidest movie. They we literally have to talk about It Follows. The scene you just mentioned. They're like, we're gonna get the demon in a in a pool, and we're gonna throw the toaster in the pool, and it's gonna electrocute the demon. So what pool do they go to? They go to a chlorinated pool. 
Chlorinated water does not conduct electricity. I thought everybody fucking knew that. That's why pools are okay to exist. If public pools, chlorinated public pools, conducted electricity, they would have been banned in the 40s. Probably earlier. Because anybody could fucking drop in a fucking anything and kill everybody. And they, then in the movie, they throw the toaster in the water and they go, why isn't it working? And I'm like, oh my god, David Robert Mitchell, you made the greatest movie <laughs> Under the Silver Lake. It's a phenomenal movie. How did you make such a good movie, but previously you were the biggest fucking sixth grade idiot I've ever seen? That movie is so fucking bad, Zach. I cannot wait to talk about it. Follows. We're never going to talk about it. Yes, we are. That's going to yes, be the episode. That's going to be the episode where it's give you a monster. I call now. you. I call Ben. All three of us are in the call, and then as soon as the episode starts, I drop <laughs> out and I make you talk to Ben about it because I am nothing but fucking angry about how stupid. Like literally, that's up there with Doctor Sleep, Arrival, Panic Room. You got it. Follows. <laughs> You got the fucking dumbest okay, movies okay. in existence. It Follows is not as offensive as Doctor Sleep because it wasn't made from a place of hate. Well, that's true. Doctor Sleep, Sleep is, is the Doctor bottom. Sleep is the most. Doctor Sleep is the most egregious of horrible movies because it's made from a. Pl- it's made solely to destroy another. Yes, film yes, we, yes, we we discussed this, but I still consider it stupid. It. it is stupid. That's why. Yes, I want, so that's why I'm, I'm comparing it, it to Arrival and Panic have Room. Have I? Have I ever told you like why some of these? Like, it's the reason why I want to do the purge one day on this podcast because I want to discuss the the, the rules of the quote unquote universe. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. You said that to me about it. Follows, yes. We want to talk about. Well, I want yes. Can I, I fly to questions. Australia and have it follow me? And it's just like, yeah, that's no, interesting. Want... But the yes. fucking movie doesn't care about that. It cares about being stupid. It's about a teenage girl that's. Like something, something afraid, sexual STDs. Like that's what the movie. No, I, I mean, I, 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 I reject your hypothesis. The movie is about <laughs> being stupid and texting with a clamshell. That's what that movie is about, and it's fucking and shooting, ridiculous. And, and shooting a demon monster with a gun in the head. I hate that I kinda, movie. You know, Rob, I, I kind of want to watch that movie, movie now. I kind of no. want to watch that movie Oh, my movie God. Now. Zach, you can watch whatever the fuck you want. I'm not watching It Follows. I'll tell you I that. Told, I, I own It Follows. I'm going to have to take Oh, oh my God. Why would I you do that? Follows. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, you own Terminator Stockholm Syndrome, so I shouldn't I be that like surprised. I like the ending of Terminator Dark Fate. Terminator Dark Fate deserves Stockholm a Syndrome pass. for the ending of Terminator it Dark Fate. Let's get that correct. a second pass. I will never watch that movie again. Is this your Terminated wife? Is the Terminated baby? Terminator baby. Delightful. Is Delightful. this your hot tomorrow's dance scene? Is this your hot tomorrow's midget? <laughs> <laughs> All right. My snacks at the restaurant before Rob steals it from me. Shot glass of wine. Okay. 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 Well, I, oh, God. I wish – this is one of the things that, you know, I wish we knew a little person – like an actuality, not just like oh the. My, uh, oh my god! I oh want. I want to know. Do they going? drink? Uh, does a little person actually drink out of like? I was about to say regular glass, and that's very offensive. How <laughs> how do you do it? How do you do it? Like I got like you doing wine out of. I don't do wine out of a shot glass. That's not enough wine when I drink wine. I have a question. I have a question. If you work as a bartender at a restaurant and a little person comes in, asks for a glass of wine, you give it to them in a shot glass. How fast are you fired? <laughs> 
Now, Zach, you're you're hitting the real questions right there. <laughs> That's fucking great. Can you imagine <laughs> giving a little person a shot glass with wine? <laughs> oh my god, that's awesome. That's awesome. Oh how fast god. do you get fired? How fast? Like, True. Just, like, like, how True. fast does it take for management to find out about that? And be I, like, get, I guess we like, can just be minutes? as offensive as possible because no one will listen to this episode except Maximo. So, you know, <laughs> the one download will be it'll be the antithesis to the uh, Frank Ocean episode. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Okay. I I had. A few other snacks, but I want you to finish if you had any others, Zach. Nope, that's it. You, you stole my rice from me. I wanted to do plain rice. Yeah, that, like, it's, it's yeah. cold. It's, but, like, I don't want, like, the rice. Like, I want rice just sitting there. Like, it has to be, like, room temperature, like, cold rice. Like, we make it and we just, like, like, is it on the table yeah. before people show up type yeah. of thing? Oh, okay. Yeah, because okay. they have to walk away from it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. The uh, the ready whip spoiled his dinner. Yes. Okay, okay. I, I think, I think I, the ready whip and the rice should be two separate things. I think really? the ready whip should be its own, like, appetizer. I, I have to say that I, I contemplated that exact thing, but I, I ended up not agreeing. I wanted them together. Oh, okay. You want, you want them together. Because it's Do a poor customer. Do we have a line between the, the ready whip then to, eating, to not eating the rice? Ooh. So maybe it's like a, like a, like a two-course meal type of thing? Mm, maybe. What about this? What about a three-course meal? It starts with a can of Ready Whip. It's followed up by a main entree of plain rice. And when you don't eat the rice, you get served a silver bullet, 50-50 scotch and vodka. Perfect. Okay, okay, we, we figured it out. We figured it out. Uh, that's why I always say these, these podcast episodes are not to discuss movies. They're to figure out how to run a restaurant. <laughs> exactly. It's subterfuge. So, so I, have, I have two more uh, one is kind of a question that I wanted to pick your brain on, but I think one is something uh, that I, I don't know if you'll have a comment on. You might not like it. Uh, why don't we have a Hervé Villahay's walk-around character to combat the Nelson De La Rosa walk-around character? Oh, oh or, I like that. They're both, they're both very angry, like, hate-filled. Yes, yes, so that's I what like I was that. thinking. Or, if they're not combating each other... The Hervé Villahay's walk-around character just goes up to customers' tables, like if there's an empty seat, and passes out on the table. Good, good. I'll go for it. <laughs> okay, nice, nice. Okay, right on. My last question for you, because I, I wanted to know what you think. Um, it's actually a two-part question. Does the Cinemonides restaurant need a morgue, and should we host funerals <gasps> at the restaurant? Well, we do have seance modities. I know, but but that's very different from a funeral or from a morgue. I know, I know. So, do we I have like a, like a like a place where? Because, well, I think it's a it's a clear fact. People are dying in our restaurant. That's a known fact. <laughs> no, well, I have an answer. I have an answer. Okay, I have an okay. Answer. Ba- it's based on previous precedent, Ooh. which might have been redundant. We have, <laughs> remember, we have Law and Order. We have Cinemati Savu with Mr. Yes. Hargate, and they yes. have to take the bodies to their own morgue, so we can't have our own morgue. Mm, you're right. I don't like it, but you're right. See? Oh, God. Oh, well, that actually makes me think, is is the the version of the Cinemati's morgue the bone pit from Sin Emodities? Maybe. Do Maybe. we just drop the bones into the bone pit and wait for the Maybe. SVU to find them? Savu to find them? <laughs> What do you think about okay. what do you think about hosting funerals though? 
What if someone wants to have a wake at the restaurant? Do we do we stop them? No, I don't think so. Okay, I'm. I think that'd be fine. You know, we get like a little room set aside, and it's you know a bunch of people mourning, and you know during the funeral they can hear from the outside of the room like people blowing up phosphorus grenades for birthdays and celebrating <laughs> and shit like that. And exactly. <laughs> Okay, I wanted. Okay, part of yesterday's conversation, I was explaining to somebody what the same person I was having all these conversations with about the about the uh, satellite cinematis restaurant at the Gypsy yeah. Galleria, and I was explaining to them about how all this is interconnected about the idea that we have animatronics that get loose, and we have Blade Runners there to hunt them down. You had the Pepe Sylvia corkboard with all the white of the strings tying together to show them this. Yes, I'm sure. Yes. yes. <laughs> Yes, and that's what it was. I described to someone of the restaurant and how insane it sounds. Like if you like if you don't listen to this podcast or you're not Rob or Zach, if you try describing the Cinemati's restaurant to someone, it sounds like you have schizophrenia. Oh my god. It's one of my favorite things. I don't know. Actually, quick aside. Did you listen to the episode Ben and I did with Jimmy Custis on Body Swap? I did not. Okay. So I drop on him the whole restaurant idea at the very beginning. And after I explained the restaurant, his response was uh, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of the greatest responses. Because when we had the, the Law & Order SVU podcast people on, uh, Matt and Aviv, uh, special viewing unit, check them out, they're great. I've been on that show before. Uh, when I explained the restaurant to them, one of them said, I don't know if Zach is real. <laughs> <laughs> I so love dropping the restaurant on people. <laughs> That might be my favorite thing about this podcast is whenever we have a new guest on, I get to just say, hey, we uh, we aren't really talking about movies. We're talking about a restaurant. It's uh, in Times Square, New York. It's where Mars 2112 used to be. It's infinite on the inside, finite on the outside, and it's totally real. That's all you need to know. And everybody goes, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite thing. <laughs> I like the fact that now that I get like schizophrenia medication like commercials on YouTube, I like <laughs> to think it's because of the Cinemahadis podcast. Are you hearing voices? And Zach's like, yes, all too often through Skype. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think I cut you off. So you were explaining the restaurant to somebody yesterday. Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes, it, it sounds absolutely insane. And they committed the you? Something like that. Okay, they called uh, CPS, Child Protective Services, on you. <laughs> Something like that. Yes, because I think I, no, really, I think they're just happy I wasn't talking about Star Wars. And they're mm-hmm. like, okay, fine, let, let, let him talk about his movie nonsense as opposed to his Star Wars nonsense. <laughs> God, no, I'm, I'm I'm totally with you. I love it. Like everybody, like the people that know me, they're like, you know, they like. I think I've told you before. Like every time I hang out with Heather and Justin. And then, like, a new person will come around. Heather will be like, you know, movies will come up. Heather will be like, Rob hosts a movie podcast. He knows about movies. And I'm like, it's a lot more than a movie podcast. There's a lot of restaurateurship that goes into this podcast. And everybody's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Oh, God. I try to explain to people there's a spreadsheet that has, like, 12 tabs at this point. And, like, every tab has, like, 30 pages. <laughs> It's speaking more of, like a manifest- of speaking of the spreadsheet, I don't know if I've ever told you. It's been like we talk all the time, but did you see that in the spreadsheet I have a stats tab? Yes, you've mentioned that. Okay, I have mentioned it. Okay, I couldn't remember if I mentioned it to you or Ben or both or anything like that. But there's a great for the audience. There's a great uh, line graph of the length of every episode we've ever done, 
and you can if you zoom out enough you can clearly see how it's gotten longer over time (laughs) (laughs) kind of hard to believe there was a 46 minute long breaking bad episode it's kind of hard to believe that the most downloaded episode is 40 minutes long (laughs) actually no it's not That's true. Good point. Good point. Well, I I attribute that to the fact that I have the greatest take in the known fucking universe about Frank Ocean's Endless. That's that's what I attribute I, that to. And Zach's clearly. like, I don't even remember your take on Frank Ocean's Endless. I don't remember anything about that because there, <laughs> there were stairs. There were stairs in a Playboy bunny. Uh, yes, I was sweater. about to say there was a sweater. <laughs> don't want that sweater. Oh God. Okay. So uh, yeah. Oh, oh also. Uh, Two hours and seven minutes is our average episode length at the last time I looked at the spreadsheet or calculated the data. Um, we've gone number. over for this episode. We're about two and a half hours, and I think we're ready to finish up. Zach, was there any final thoughts you had about Hot Tomorrow's Martin Breast, Rob's nope. infatuation with Martin Breast, anything like that? Nope. Nope. All I right. am good other than wanting a good copy of this film. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's what we can hope for. So next week, we are going to continue on. Uh, we're not going to skip anything. We're going to go right into Martin Brest's next film, uh, Going in Style. And this is another film that deals with death, so uh, expect that if you uh, were turned off by this episode, if anybody listened to this episode. And um, we're going to get into some some good stuff there. Uh, I think there's actually some more information about that movie. Uh, in terms of, you know, I guess the thing I think of is Rob owns the DVD that has some special features on it. So there'll be a little more context, but we're going to keep going with Martin Brest, and it's going to be good fun. Zach, are you excited? I, I, let's leave it at that. Zach's like, I can't wait to talk more about Death Rob. That's great. That's what I, I want cannot this wait. Year. <laughs> I cannot wait for the Beverly Hills Cop episode, therefore I get a week off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what Zach's looking forward to. Uh, I guess with that being said, bomb, 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 bomb. No, uh, the only way to end this episode, I think, uh, is the Forty Second Street musical number from the end in reverse, right? Mm-hmm. How do how do we not do that musical number in reverse? Um, I'll how probably have not, put Rob? put it in in forward so everybody can hear it. It's so goddamn good. Um, and as Zach mentioned before, I think everybody we strongly recommend check it out. Like type in Hot Tomorrows into YouTube. You're going to get that 42nd Street musical number. It is so worth watching. It is a fantastic piece of filmmaking. Um, and we wish more people had can, could see this movie. Could. If that's could. Fair. could. Yeah, could. could yeah. <laughs> um, so hopefully this podcast makes it so. Is that right, Zach? That we, we you know, we, Indeed, we bump up the, uh, the, the listens and stuff like that and, and maybe – Three more people will want this on Criterion. Is that fair? Yes. I think a lot of people would want this if they actually could see it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This would be up there with a razor head. And Freddy got fingered, eh, right? Well, <laughs> come on. The ideal is Freddy got fingered in the Criterion collection, which I did find the image from like six weeks I ago and I did send her off. I know you shared that with me on Facebook. I didn't respond to it, but I laughed at it a lot. And uh, <laughs> I think at the end of this episode, the only thing I can say is, um, Gordy... I don't want jewels. I just want hot tomorrows in better quality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have fun over here on Cinemodities. <laughs> Indeed.
Yeah. <laughs> 